You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Richard Chance is a federal agent who will cross the line if he has to. U.S. Secret Service. I'm arresting this guy for counterfeiting. I want my paper, Jeff. I told you I don't have it. Get it. Rick Masters is a counterfeiter who killed Chance's partner. When do I get delivery? How about Friday night? If I don't hear from you by Friday, I'm coming back to get this. It's understandable. director of the French Connection is back on the street again to live and die in L.A. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Jedediah Ayers. Your taste is in your ass. Also back in the booth is Mr. Andrew Nettie. Uncle Sam, don't give a shit about your expenses. You want bread? Fuck a biker. November 2020 concludes with a look at William Friedkin's To Live and Die in L.A. The film pits Treasury agent William Friedkin as Richard Chance against Willem Dafoe as artist and forger Rick Masters. Based on the novel of the same name by Gerald Petovich, it's an unexpected cat-and-mouse story bathed in the harsh light of Los Angeles. We plan on spoiling this film as we go along, so if you haven't seen To Live and Die in L.A., turn off the podcast and come back later. We will still be here. So, Jed, when was the first time you saw the film, and what did you think? I honestly don't remember when the first time I saw it was. It was probably sometime in high school or just after, but it's a movie that I was very aware of. It had a poster and a title that just caught my imagination when I was a kid and wasn't allowed to see movies. So it was one that I I always wanted to see. Eventually I did, but I had no idea what the plot was going in. I had no idea who the movie stars were. But yeah, I really loved it and I've watched it repeatedly uh, the last 30 years or so. How about you, Andrew? Like Jed, I actually can't remember when I first saw this. It wasn't in the 80s. I spent most of the 1990s working overseas in Asia, so I didn't see it then. I think when I came back in the late 90s, I was living in Melbourne. I was unemployed. I spent a lot of time at our local DVD store. I'm pretty sure that's when I saw it. 
and I was vaguely aware that it had a connection, the same director that had done The French Connection, which is a movie I had seen earlier. I've seen it several times since, and it's grown on me every single time I've seen it. I mean, I think it's one of those films where you, you get another layer every time you see it. Watching it again in prep for this episode, I got that again. I mean, it's a, it's a terrific neo-noir. It's an extraordinary depiction of L.A., and there's, there's so many interesting things in this film in terms of how it relates to Freakin's other work, the performances. It's got many sort of dimensions. It's a revenge film. It's a sort of nihilistic cop buddy film. But it's also, I think, a really interesting film in what, in what for what of a better term I'd call sort of deregulated American crime cinema in the 1980s, which is, you know, crimes that take place in that Reagan-esque economically deregulated sort of country that that happened in the 80s. I think it's just such an interesting movie. I saw this one for the first time with my ex-wife when we were first dating. So it would have been early 90s, 92, 93, something like that. And I will admit I enjoyed the movie, but I didn't really understand the movie. Even going back and rewatching it the first few times for this podcast – I have to say that there's a lot of things that I just didn't get. And it wasn't until we get to the part that's, I can't even tell you what the time code is, but once they decide we need this front money in order to buy this counterfeit money and we're going to rob this Asian guy, that's when the movie really starts for me. So all of the stuff before that, I was just like, what the fuck is happening? Like I didn't get Max Waxman and Ruthie and Bianca and Serena and Cody and all these kind of things. I was just like, what is happening? There were so many characters that just get kind of dumped on you right away that I was like, so confused by this film now after having read the book and read the script and all this kind of stuff i'm like okay yeah this makes total sense but the film moves in a different way in the first say half of it than it does in the second half and i think now i appreciate that a lot more than i used to and i know friedkin is the kind of director who's just like you know, he says in his commentary, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to have a character say, I'll meet you around the corner and then show them meeting around the corner. He'll just cut to around the corner and expect you to keep up. Now I feel like I finally have caught up with this, with this movie. That's the key thing, isn't it? I mean, it's, it, it does, it starts out being a revenge film and then it, it has, as I say, this, this sort of ultra nihilistic buddy cop thing. And then halfway through, it sort of changes up and it sort of becomes a heist film and it's the cops pulling the heist, you know, which is just am- which is just amazing. When you get that weird double intro to the film, which I know now was the first intro was kind of tacked on after the movie was already set. Like, if you watch this movie cold, having never seen it before, there's an opening to the movie, and then that's over, and then the movie starts again, basically. <laughs> and and we start with credits probably, what, five, ten minutes into the film. But that opening was put in later on. It was put in for a few reasons. One reason was because Wang Chung had come back with this song called To Live and Die in L.A., which Friedkin specifically told them, don't write a song called that or with those lyrics, but they produced one, brought it to him, and he said, this is fantastic. I need to use this. That's one of the things that went into it. And the other thing, which 
I think helps set the tone too. You're talking about how this is in this wasteland of Reagan's America and Ronald Reagan kind of becomes a character in the film, uh, which is very interesting that it, it, it not only is he there in voice and with this speech that he's giving, but also the contents of the speech are very telling is talking about death and taxes. And here we are in a movie called to live and die. And in LA, this whole idea of life and death, money and commerce all coming together is very interesting that that happens to be the speech that he is not shown, but that we hear over the action. And then we get a good dose of, you know, mid eighties, uh, Islamophobia as well. I, I, for one, having read the script, it was a pretty bland script. I mean, you can, I mean, the, the version I read, the, the Friedkin version, you can tell he knows what's going on in his head. He is not saying what's going on on the page. There's not really much there for actors. Yeah. That, that whole opening sequence isn't on there. I think the, it's, it's impressive that a movie as good as this came out. If you just looked at that script, I don't think anybody read that script and go, Oh, this is going to be a really good movie. But that's very clear from the extras, isn't it? I mean, that, that or, or some of the extras I saw, that there was an enormous amount of um, improvisation that took place in it. I mean, I think that's that, that you know, the, going back to that heist again, the scene where they're shaking down that um, Asian guy who's come in to, with the, supposedly come in with the money for the, for, the, for the diamond buy. You know, that was all improvised. And I think it all, it, it feels really scrappy and like it doesn't quite, it's not smooth like a lot of films, and I think that's one of the real, you know, and, and I think I was watching something with Peterson saying, you know, and, and freaking just rock catch the camera rolling and doesn't say anything, so you just you just ad-lib it. Um, and it feels really good. It feels sort of messy and, 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 and real and, and, and scrappy. Not only do you just keep going with it, but apparently working with Friedkin, you know you're only going to get one or two takes <laughs> so you're going with it and you better make it stick you better do the right thing this time if you're even getting a take i mean he's shooting a lot of these things as rehearsals which is interesting he just lets the camera roll has you know tells robbie mueller hey go ahead and start this and doesn't let the actors know that the film is rolling as they are rehearsing and then he's like okay cut print that's good let's move on so it's you're one and done and you may not even be ready for the one there's a lot of directors to work like that. Like, you know, Eastwood, I think, works very economically that way. But I got to say, I don't get the impression watching these freaking movies. I never feel like, oh, they really rushed this. But sometimes watching like an Eastwood movie, I say, eh, this performance seems pretty stiff. This is, uh, you know, maybe you should have done another take or two. I don't know. I think one of the advantages there is that you've got these high caliber actors. These are some of these uh, actors' first or earliest screen roles. Peterson had been in a few things. Defoe had been in a few things. But this is pre-Manhunter. This is pre-Platoon. And both of these guys and Pankow, John Panko is the John Vukovich character. They're all coming from a theater background. And it's not just regular theater. It's like kind of experimental theater in the case of Defoe, really hardcore theater scene in Chicago between Peterson and Pankow. It's great. You can tell that these guys are 
trained. They know how to do this stuff. Totoro shines. Stockwell had been around so long, he knows what he's doing. So you bring together all of these people that just know their game so well that they can shoot on a rehearsal and make it shine. I mean, Stockwell was about the only one that really had a serious, you know, a film CV behind him. All the others, as you say, were, um, it was either there, you know, they'd done small parts. I mean, Defoe had done Raven and Streets of Fire in 1984. That was his only major role before this. Um, Flugel, Taurus. I mean, all these people, they hardly did, they'd hardly done anything very much. And it really, yeah, I agree. It really works. I and mean, that's because, you know, Freakin only apparently had a budget of $6 million to make the film. I couldn't quite figure that out why that was. I don't know whether he was still in the dog box after the um, after the failure of Sorcerer or what. But, um, you know, it, it really works. I'd hold it up against any big budget production, you know, thriller of the day. Uh, it. It doesn't suffer in terms of looks. It doesn't, you know, maybe certainly the star quality that we see in it now wouldn't have been there at the time because, like we said, it's the earliest screen presence of a lot of these people. But, yeah, it does not look or feel like a low-budget movie, and surely it wouldn't have with Wang Chung soundtrack, things like that at the time. It's funny, there's a connection between this movie and a movie we did a few weeks ago, which is Poltergeist. I think it was one or two of the same producers. I know for sure Irving Levin was involved in both of those, and I, I think that's one of the reasons, too, why this was a little bit smaller of a budget, was this was Friedkin wanting to do this, and basically Levin pulling together the money, and it wasn't like studio-bound until a little bit later on. I think he finally made that deal and got it going there. But yeah, it is interesting that this is smaller budget. This feels very influenced to me by Miami Vice, and I'm trying to remember when Miami Vice was on the air. And it's funny that Peterson, the only real roles that he had done uh, before this, one of them was working in Thief, and then he would go on to work in Manhunter. So he had that Michael Mann connection. I do think that Miami Vice is huge. At least they're drawing from the same things that are in the the general atmosphere preparing for this. I watched the whole first season of Miami Vice, and there are so many scenes that, like the the airport scene, there's a scene pretty much exactly like that in the first season of Miami Vice. And yeah, the whole pop music, cops, street crime, and, and, and cops in cool clothes and things like that. Uh, is very similar to to live and die in LA. And going back, I also you know watching the French Connection and then watching uh, the uh, first episode of Starsky and Hutch I was like, God, Starsky and Hutch really wanted to be to begin with anyway. It seemed like, hey, let's do the French Connection TV show. I mean, it got real campy pretty quick, but that like first two hour pilot was I, it got it had a real French Connection vibe to it, and so I, I think. Whether or not you can say it was uh, to live and die in L.A. drawing from Miami Vice or vice versa, they they definitely seem to be catching something in in the air tonight. (laughs) So the book to live and die in L.A. was out in early 84. Miami Vice's first episode was September 84, and the first draft of this that we read was October 84. So I think there was, to your point, Jed, something in the air. 
I remember Jed and I had a conversation ages ago online about uh, we both are big fans of, just to, to, to shift it slightly, big fans of the second series of True Detective, which is set in LA. And one of the things that I, I think, I mean, I know he found interesting about it and I also found interesting about it is it sort of LA is such a, a well-known movie city. It's been shot so countlessly in, in cinema and on television. And, of course, there's the whole Hollywood thing and all of that, that it's hard to do a different – it's hard to look at L.A. in a different way. And, I mean, that was something I think that that second season of True Detective showed you in L.A. you don't often see in the movies. And I think that's something that I also think this film does. It shows you a, a depiction of L.A., which I haven't seen in a lot of sort of films. I mean, and it's not just the look. And, I mean, I think we you know we can talk later about uh, – Muller's cinematography on this and how much that contributes to what an amazing film this is. But it's the way that Freakin maps out the sort of racial, economic, sort of crime contours of the of the whole city through scenes like that. Um, you know that all that money changing hands at the beginning. People of different ethnicities and different classes, obviously exchanging exchanging all that counterfeit money that Masters has made. Things like those extraordinary scenes where you just see that forest of telegraph poles. It literally does look like a sort of jungle. Some of the industrial areas, things like that. But, yep, L.A. sort of shot like I've very rarely seen it on the screen, and I think that really contributes to the film. Yeah, this does not look like typical L.A. I don't see City Hall. I don't see the Hollywood sign. I see what looks like if you go behind the facade, and like you were saying, like all of that, uh, industrial area, all of the lights on that oil refinery and stuff. It, this is not the LA that I'm used to. These are not the landmarks that you see in so many LA things. I'm not familiar with LA, so I didn't even know that a lot of these things existed. Other than the LA River, I don't know any of the you know landmarks. It's uh, almost like purposely avoiding what is standard to shoot. I remember an anecdote about Gene Hackman shooting the Royal Tenenbaums in New York. And there's a scene at the Statue of Liberty or where the Statue of Liberty is, is in the background, but you can't, you can't see it at all. You know, they have him framed so that you can't see it. And he was really irritated about it. Like, you know, why, why would you shoot New York and not, and why would you shoot right here and not have the Statue of Liberty in the, in the scene? And, and Wes Anderson was very intentional about that. And it's like, we're not supposed to show that this is a, you know, but, but you look at, you look at that movie and it's very New York movie, but you don't see New York the way it's presented in movies often. And I, I think uh, there was probably something like that going on here. And so much of it comes down to, I mean, we may as well talk about it now. So much of it comes down to Muller's cinematography, which I just think is is absolutely stupendous. I mean, he did, so he shot three LA movies, I think, in the, in the, in the 1980s. He did Repo Man, he did, and he did To Live and Die. Flat, you know, the way he looks at um, light, the way he can make uh, urban blight, I suppose, look visually pleasing. I mean, he was Dutch born. He brought this real stranger's eye to it. He's just, there's so the depth in some of his shots. I mean, I, I, I keep coming back to it, and I know we're jumping around a lot. I keep coming, in my own mind, I keep coming back to that extraordinary scene where um, Chance walks into the, the strip club that his um that his snitch Ruth is working in, I mean, and it's just bathed in that red and green light. It's it, you know they've got the disco. You, you've got the whole 
Maison, which is a word, a term I've wanted to use on a projection booth podcast for so long. <laughs> uh, but no, but in terms of the, the look, the strippers are framed in the in the, in the, in the background. You've got the music going on. You've got the you know the bikers and the working joes coming in and taking tickets. And of course, Chance just just sort of almost jumps the jumps jumps the turnstile. And there's so many amazing scenes like that, which also give you this entree into LA. I mean, some of the scenes in Ruth's flat where. You know, you've got that amazing LA industrial skyline in the background. Um, that scene with with uh, in, in Watts with Masters and and his black contact Rice. You know, when they're walking along that graffitied street, talking about having Cody killed in jail. I mean, Chance driving around LA. I mean, there's so much that Muller does with this. It's incredible. I could just watch it again and again and again. That they made the traffic go the wrong way during the chase so that they could frame it with that industrial skyline rather than the opposite skyline. I mean, that's dedication to, <laughs> to say, let's put the traffic on the, the, say, the British side of things. And hopefully, you know, Freakin's like, people won't notice. And people have noticed. But he's just like, no, no, we're, we're too invested in the car chase. People won't notice this thing. Basically, I want the skyline behind them. That whole thing is so batshit crazy, though. Oh, That's why you, yeah. don't, you don't think about it. It's too. It's just too fucking crazy. Even though it was done for other reasons, adds to the disorientation of the whole thing. I think it emotionally helps you get into, say, Pankow's character freaking out in the back seat. I think it kind of helps that way. You know, who who noticed it the first time they saw it is is a good, you know, a question. No, now you watch it because you study that scene and you want to see how they're putting this thing together. Because that chase scene, and again, we're jumping all over, that chase scene is a movie within the movie. It has a beginning, middle, and end. It has a climax. It has an arc to it. It's just amazing that it's like we start here in this kind of shipping area, and then we move, uh, we get kind of forced into the, um, uh, the, the LA River area where we've seen a couple car chases happen before. We've seen it in Terminator 2. We've seen it in, uh, Greece. We've seen this uh, a few times. I, I think, uh, I can't remember, Jed or Andrew, one of you posted the shot from, uh, Point Blank, you know, where the, the finale, the, the climax of the film takes place in this same area. And then they get moved onto the freeway. And then it just takes all of the stuff that we've seen over the last however many minutes and amps it up even more. And now it becomes this wrong way freeway chase. Fucking crazy. And that it is Friedkin saying, yeah, the chase in the French Connection was good, but I think 13, 14 years later, I can do it even better. Yes, I put that on Twitter. That's the Sixth Street Viaduct. Or, or was. It got knocked down, apparently, because it had concrete cancer, so they knocked it down. And someone sent me after I posted a question about, you know, where is this in LA? Someone sent me an article from the from the uh, the Atlantic that cites that it's basically been in eighty movies, television shows, rock clips. I mean, it's it's you know it, it's uh, Buckaroo Bonsai and the Invaders, you know, Buckaroo Bonsai, um, Terminator, as you say, Repo Man, so many films, Grease, Drive. It also makes a lot of sense having Mueller as the DP because he brings this kind of documentary feel to it. And that was Friedkin's background before he made things like The Night They Raided Minsky's and The French Connection, Boys in the Band. He was doing a lot of TV documentaries. So it has that documentary feel. There's a lot of times where it doesn't feel like they have 
and they probably did, but it feels like they didn't block out the scenes. And then you get these amazing shots of, say, Peterson at the bar, and you get that. I mean, this movie, I don't know how much Miller paid this movie, but my God, the product placement in here, and it just is gorgeous. I mean, I've never seen a Miller Light bottle look as as good as I have as far as that scene with uh, with Peterson where he's got one right there dead center in the frame um, as he's at a bar. And then you get the Miller Lite uh, neon and uh, going through so many things, too. There's another scene at a different bar where the stuff is lit by neon. It just it looks so good. And it does have that fly by the seat of your pants kind of feel to it. Because the other L.A. film he did was Barfly, that Miller did Barfly, which I rewatched recently. If you want to see dingy dive bars made to look like absolutely visually stunning, both in terms of the position of the camera and the lighting, Barfly, you know, is the film to see. I mean, it's just it's just amazing. That's a thing that uh, cinematography brings to a lot of literary adaptations that um, I think is, is discounted for a lot of folks when, they, when they're comparing books to film. A lot of my favorite books, when they're adapted, just – they don't feel amazing because the cinematography wasn't amazing. You know, it, it kind of is like the prose, you know, the story might be the same, but the prose in the novel you're missing is, is uh, really needs to be complemented or transposed to cinematography rather than say dialogue or something like that. And that's uh, yeah, this, this is a great. And, and I got to say, I like the movie better than the book. Even though I enjoyed, I enjoyed the book a lot the, the things from this story that really stand out and that I love uh, come from the movie. You know, he put in those those great action sequences. The whole airport sequence wasn't in the book. You know, uh, and the uh, the car chase wasn't in the book. The book had a lot of cool character stuff and, and kind of behind the scenes machinations of of uh, the job, both the black market side and and the the federal police side, but um, yeah, the, the the muscle and energy and amazing visuals, uh, the movie is, is, I think, superior that way. Yeah, I was a little floored that reading the book, Cody's already in jail. The John Turturro character is in jail by the time the book starts. And then you get to hear it's all backstory and of all of these things as far as how he got there as opposed to the exciting chase through the airport. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, th- this works a lot better. And it's that whole show-don't-tell kind of thing, too. The the artistry of Masters putting together the paint colors and having the um, exacto blade and cutting out things, breathing on that plate, and you get to see the reflection in the plate of the, the, the $20 bills. All of that stuff is gorgeous. It's such a nice montage and you can't really get that in the book and i appreciated that they said okay this is very important we're going to put this in here and it comes at a really nice time too we've got this great opening montage of la and we're talking about the passing of the money you get men you get women you get black people you get white people it's just everybody using this money the way that money moves from one person to another throughout the society whether they are upper echelon or lower tier no matter what it is everybody's using this money and then having this 
scene of Masters doing this stuff shortly after we are introduced to Chance. And I like to the very subtle score, and then boom, when the music hits and you get that to live and die in LA theme coming in, it really, really works well. It's such a great scene. There's this sort of low-level thrum throughout the entire theme. It's not exactly like a beating heart, but it's like this – it's just another layer of the texture of the film. And so, yes, it it kicks in at certain points to the Wen Chung soundtrack, but even when it's not doing that, you're there, you can hear this sort of low-level thrum, and it just adds this sort of tension and excitement to the whole thing. I agree. The money-making scenes were quite stunning. I was—I I thought about—I've just started watching the first season of Ozarks, which is which has started very strong. And there's a scene there where the guy's um, aging banknotes by putting them in with with coins, putting them in a dryer with coins. And I noticed that I think um, Masters puts them in the dryer with casino gambling chips. One of which then Chance finds, and it becomes his sort of little thing he carries around with him. But um, I mean, you can't help but make that connection between counterfeiting and um you know and, and making art art you know masters as a as an artist and also as a as a counterfeiter there is a terrific three-part interview i don't know if any of you f- saw it on the crime writer wallace Strobe's website he did a three-part interview with uh Petovich, which is kind of interesting talking about the film and how he became a how, how Petovich became a crime writer it also Petrovich was the real deal. He'd done protect, protective service. He'd worked as a he'd worked as a federal agent. He'd done protective service for presidents, including Reagan. I think he he protected foreign dignitaries while they were in the U.S. He 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 worked um, for the Treasury Department, I think, as an agent there. And he's got this um, there's this whole discussion between Strobe and um, Petrovich, and I think it's touched on in some of the material you sent sent us around this film, Mike, about the Treasury Department in real life were really concerned about the realism of those scenes with masters making the money. And apparently some of the money leaked off the set and there was, there was a bit of there was a bit of tension around that. But there's a great quote in that interview that Strobe does with Petovich where he where he sort of says, Look, were you did you think the Treasury Department had a point in you that you shouldn't have shown how, you know, the realism of making the money? He said, No, not at all, because there's no one who can no one who can learn to to, to print from watching about two minutes of film. Besides, every printer in the United States, and that's probably about 200,000 of them, has the ability to print counterfeit money. It's very easy. In fact, I've arrested counterfeiters who've learned to print from a book in a library. So you could make the same analogy. Strobe asks him, how many counterfeiters have you arrested in your time? And, 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 and Petrovich says, thousands. There were years I was working the counterfeiting squad in LA where we'd arrest 500 counterfeiters a year. These are people that either passed counterfeit money, dealt counterfeit money, or printed it. It's amazing to think that that crime is that pervasive. I mean, but then wasn't it counterfeiting that kicked off the whole recent events of you know the resurgence of Black Lives Matter, the um, George Floyd stuff, I think that was all to do with an accusation of passing a counterfeit bill. Yeah, it's hard not to think of that, especially watching uh, the scene of um, Masters negotiating the price of a hit with Rice. Oh, um, and he's got $100,000 in $100 bills, and it's like, no. I, I don't want that. That's that's useless to me. Hundreds don't go over well in this <laughs> this area, and I think he settles on fifty thousand dollars in twenties. And then they have a line about you know if it's all 
just paper to you, you know, why, why even haggle over it? What does it matter to you? How much I want? And, and it, it, it's, it's an interesting, both as a social sociological texture, that's interesting, but it's also interesting in that, as you talked about, Andrew, um, he's an artist, he's a fine artist. And as far as we know, he's not selling his fine artwork. He's all we ever see him do with it is burn it. And, uh, and then there's the scene of him burning his other art, the money that he's recovered. Is he a fine artist to make money? If he actually makes money, (laughs) uh, is that art, you know, and what's the value of it to him? And this is the only time we ever see him talking about the value, uh, the monetary value of, of his work and his, his art. There's a couple of things when he's burning the money that I find interesting. One is that he is stark naked. So it's like masters laid bare, literally, as well as Bianca. And I find it interesting too that Bianca, you know, white, uh, just plain, like she is, is so integral to the movie, but never really kind of gets a personality. But him there, stark naked, throwing away the money and just like, it's almost like the money has been tainted by being with rice and being with these African-American people. I know I'm probably reading a little bit too much into it, but I really think that race politics plays a big part in this film, as does masculinity. But Mike, isn't that your idea for a projection booth 2021 calendar? Is all the various co-hosts nude in front of a fire burning money? Oh, are you guys not right now? I'm sorry. Let me (laughs) mute my mic. Put this fire up. I wondered why you had sent me that photo, Andrew, but it was very tasteful. Bit of extra scratch, all that kind of thing. Who hasn't wanted to burn money in the fireplace in their Asian fusion architecturally designed, you know, apartment and then watch themselves having sex on a video camera, which is what, you know, Masters does just for a bit of kink. Oh, there's so much stuff just in that. The whole idea of the image more than the reality that he's in the moment, but he's getting off on seeing his own image on that TV screen. I mean, this is just like, I, I, I'm surprised that Laura Mulvey isn't just like, hey, let's talk about this movie. You know, it's there's so many levels to this. There's a and nice I- counterpart to that, too, that that uh, Chance, the scene he has with Ruthie, the, the sex scene, he takes off his shirt and she puts it on. So Masters watches his his own image while he is engaging and chance also essentially watches his own image, you know, as she puts on, puts on his shirt for their encounter. That's that really stood out to me that they both the women, not to the movie necessarily, but definitely to the characters are kind of interchangeable. You know, it's, it's, it's the image uh, that the, for the male characters that's so important watching the videotape and you know making her put on his clothes uh was they seem parallel to me there's some other nice parallels too you talked about the strip club that chance goes into and then take that and compare it against the club that masters is at where we first see bianca in this black and white kind of um androgynous uh, Matisse inspired creation that she's wearing. All the dancers kind of look alike. You can't really tell who's a man, who's a woman. They make a big point of saying that she's a very tall woman, even when she comes into the room and 
Masters kisses her, there's a big thing in the script about, you know, we don't know if this is a woman or not. Oh, it is a woman, but it sure did look like a man from the back. And I'm just like, wow, we're retreading that kind of cruising thing again with this whole gender stuff that's going on. I mean, definitely the guy who made cruising, you're going to see a lot of similarities as far as the way that these sexual relationships are portrayed and that, oh my God, the, the homoeroticism of masters when when chance comes in and he's got the money belt but you don't necessarily know that he's got a money belt and masters walks up to him and he's so close that he could kiss him and he says is this my package and then you hear the rip and you <laughs> and he's got the money belt and his next line is you're beautiful and then we get that same echo of you're beautiful right before masters tries to take or chance tries to take him down those two central female characters um Ruth, the, the snitch, and um, well, she's not just a snitch, and and and, and um, Master's lover, Deborah. They are great roles. I mean, I think it's really clear that um, not only is um, Deborah Chance's sort of equal, is Master's equal in a way. She she helps him out. He he confides in her. He treats her as a sort of equal. And I think, and it's a point you made in a a post you did on your website, Jed, about Ruth which I think is really important to sort of, which I think when I read it, I thought, oh, yeah, you've really nailed it with this. When you said, I think that Ruth is the moral centre of the film, which mm. I totally agree. I think she's, you know, she's, it's some extraordinary scenes with her because she is, he's a police, she's a police informant. She's Chance's, I don't know if you can say she's Chance's lover because basically Chance extorts information and sex out of her and treats her terribly and all those scenes where, you know, after they've had sex and she's saying, what would you do if I lied to you about this? And he said, I just, I just violate your parole, put you back in jail. You know, he's so brutal towards her, but she's constantly trying to get out from under him, literally and metaphorically, I suppose. I mean, you know, she's got a kid which you don't hear about. She's trying to get out of this life. She's got that sort of apartment in that shitty industrial part of LA. She, in a sense, sets up... Chance and Vukovic when they pull their heist. I mean, they they pull their heist. They they knock off that 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 guy with the money on her information, and he he of course turns out to be a, an undercover agent. And I mean, I think there's that the very clear inference in the film. She knew about this, and she was basically just wanting them to get the money because she wanted to cut of them because it's her it's her way of getting out away from Chance and getting out away from um from LA. And then at the very end, that extraordinary scene. When Vukovic becomes Chance, and then basically it's it, it's start, the, the nightmare starts again for Ruth. I reckon she's she's that really key character in the whole film. That scene where Vukovic becomes Chance, when I was talking about cruising, that's really also a moment that came to mind. It's that moment at the end of cruising when Karen Allen puts on the leather hat oh. and the sunglasses. She becomes that same spirit to me that is inhabiting these men that is like creating this killer this is for me like the spirit of chance is now moved into vukovic ruth is is the character to kind of root for in the whole thing i mean yeah you want chance you want chance to have revenge we we both want him to have revenge but we want ruth to get out and to be with her son and to be free from this horrible thing and it turns out at the end she has been playing playing him but bianca has also been playing uh masters to a degree exactly. you know she gets out with the paintings 
and is ready to start a new life. I don't know if the relationship between Masters and, and Bianca is – you don't get the feeling that Masters would maybe mind it that much. Like he understands that she is – they're both using each other in, in you know, one, one way or another. One interesting thing I found between the Ruth and Bianca characters, though, is that they are both – they're kind of the mystical – characters they're both you know ruth keeps bringing up you know she looks at the night sky and she says don't you think the stars are the eyes of god and she's very concerned with you know god is watching and uh, she asks chance and chance is like no absolutely not and uh, bianca is constantly talking about dreams you know the biggest speech in the entire script the freed conversion of it in anyway is her talking about her dreams and you know she's like getting guidance from these dreams and, and ruth is is constantly you know obsessed about the eyes of god watching her and and the men that they're partnered with uh or shackled to if you prefer are purely physical they're just they're in this moment right now they're going on instinct they're strictly strictly animal in that way well, the other person that is pulling the strings in here is Grimes, the Dean Stockwell character, who I don't know how he knows Vukovic, but he's both a client of Masters and kind of a friend to Vukovic, though it seems like as soon as he gets information, he's going to sell it over to Masters and vice versa. Like He is definitely pitting both ends against each other, and he's one person along with Bianca who comes out on top major difference between the movie and the book uh, is the movie chance is driven by this revenge uh, for his partner uh, motive and his partners there's no revenge angle in in the book the his partner doesn't get killed the whole chain of events gets started by the Grimes character the lawyer basically admitting that uh, you know coming to uh, the cops and just saying look you know I, I do this job and I I'm with a lot of uh, you know, morally shady characters and, and criminals. And uh, every once in a while, I just feel like I got to tip the scales a little back uh, karmically. And so he just rats out his, his clients, you know, totally unethical and, and, and things like that. But I mean, yeah, masters would have kept going in the book anyway, he kept going indefinitely and kept beating raps uh, if his lawyer hadn't with no other motivation than just, to feel a little better about himself hadn't sold him out. This is why this this film is arguably the ultimate Reagan-esque crime film, really, because everyone's everyone's selling everyone out. Everyone's hustling. Everyone's corrupt. I mean, if you think Ruth is in this terribly exploitative relationship, but she's also trying to play, you know, both ends against the middle. Grimes, as you say, is selling out his own clients. Chance, there's there's Rice, his um, master's black contact, who's also is also hustling. There's, of course, we haven't talked about Waxman, who yep. I love that the ex hippie civil rights lawyer who's sold out and who now basically is in partnership with with uh, Masters. And I mean, it reminded me of another, I think you know, another film. Um, uh, I know he's a controversial character these days, James Woods. Um, but uh, you know, when he played Eddie, uh, 1989 film True Believer where he played the sort of version of William Kunstler. Love, I love you know, lawyers that have ex, – ex-radical lawyers who've sold out. But it's sort of everyone's, everyone's hustling, and that's what makes it such a sort of interesting, 
embodiment of the era's policies and pursuit of excess at any cost, I think. You know, we've, we've, we've moved well on from the, the liberatory potential of, of the 60s and the 1970s. You know, greed is good. The only thing that matters is money. And, I mean, I think that's what makes it, I said earlier at the very beginning, you know, it's sort of a deregulated, it's a deregulated crime cinema because the 70s were, were full of cops, in a sense, taking matters in their own hands. I mean, and of course, that sort of trope goes back to, to, to film noir as well. But I, I, I'm hard-pressed to think of many films where earlier on in the 70s where the cops basically just decide they, they can't get the money to sort of spring a trap to uh, you know, to lure masters into a trap, the $50,000, because, of course, budget cutbacks and everything, you know, Reagan's America. So they decide, right, the department hasn't got the funding to give us this, so we're just going to go out and we're going to pull a heist. You know, and I think it's at that point for me the entire revenge aspect is kind of lost in that after a while. I think it's almost chance is almost on automatic pilot now. He's just doing it because he just basically wants to get back at at Masters and it's almost like the death of his partner in a way has kind of been forgotten. But it sort of also symbolises that complete collapse between the criminal, you know, the criminal quote-unquote and the investigator, the police person quote-unquote, which, you know, as we've, we've already started to see that blur in the 1970s. I mean, certainly it was a, it was a feature of the French connection, that blurring of the, you know, like Popeye, Popeye Doyle prepared to break how many rules to catch Frog One. But, I mean, even Popeye Doyle didn't decide to go and pull a heist and then get a federal agent killed who's undercover so he could get buy money to bust a, to bust a, a bad guy. I mean, I just think it's really, really interesting, and that's it's a very, you know really interesting. I like that we see the degradation of Vukovic's morals as this movie goes along. There's like a death by a thousand paper cuts in here. There's like you know he tells him right out. Chance tells him, "Listen, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get revenge for my partner." And then it's like little things that he keeps doing, like stealing the black book from Waxman's office. And I found it interesting that there was a, a scene in that early script where it was uh, Bateman, the Robert Downey Sr. character, pitting Chance against Vukovic, and Vukovic is just playing it straight. Even at one point when Bateman is talking to Chance, and he's just like, hey, Vukovic sold you down the river, and Chance just plays it straight like he knows that Vukovic didn't do it. It's like he's already got his hooks in him. And the, like I said, those little things that go through until you get to that fucking robbery. And it's like, man, you have crossed the line so far. And he still stays with them. He still is Chance's friend and partner. And it is very interesting that in one point, Chance says, you're not my partner. You're not my friend. It's like the two things are so different, but they're tied together with these two men. Mike, love is like that. Well, it is. Uh, you say love. That's a very important theme that uh, the movie is almost like the story of two long term, you know, marriages ending with where where Chance is is kind of a grieving widower after Hart, Jimmy Hart is killed. And he's 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 maybe back out on the dating scene with uh, with Vukovic and, and not sure what the future is there. But Masters is going through a messy breakup divorce with uh, Cody and is uh, having to cut ties there and maybe get, uh, you know, really vicious uh, with somebody that he's been in uh, business with 
uh, for a long time. It, it struck me as almost like a just a like a hyper violent romantic drama in that way. It, it, well, there's also a third leg to that stool, which is Vukovic. The deleted scenes that we have on the DVDs or Blu-rays, where we get to see him talking to his. I think it's either soon to be ex or recently ex-wife. So he's also got that kind of baggage. So it would have been nice to have that parody as well. But the way that they cut it, I think having Masters and Chance being those two men having these similar circumstances and kind of leaving Vukovic out of it makes a lot of sense. And freaking saying on one of those extras, look, I, I, I can't remember why I cut that scene between Vukovic and his wife. You know, if I put if I'd made the film today, I would have kept that in. It was a great scene. I just can't remember it. I mean, cocaine's like that. I do think that it's probably a stronger movie uh, for cutting it out, just because it, it's another layer that only complicates things. It doesn't, you know, the, this movie is is so lean and it lives on its propulsive energy. I'd say there's a kind of a weakness to it if you just. I don't know. Last year, I think I watched it and I was noticing how just kind of cliche a lot of the dialogue is. It's just kind of placeholder dialogue, cop talk to get, you know, or character talk to get you to the action. You know, the, the actors really bring something to it and, and the, the photography really brings something to it and the editing really brings something to it. And I think freaking had that in mind, but the, the dialogue itself is, is very straight down the middle. There's no flavor to it, really. It, it's all in the performance and the editing. And I, I think the Vukovic character in the book, there is a lot more focus on his, his uh, relationship uh, with his ex-wife. And, and it was probably the right choice for the movie that uh, yeah, it don't really need that because we already have the other two for film. It, I think it did work better. The- dialogue has some very interesting turns though to me as far as how i'll just say it how anal centric the dialogue is <laughs> i mean the line your taste is in your ass is not in the script so i was appreciative that that was in there and that's the line for me 18th century cameroon your taste is in your ass that's the line that i always remember from this the other thing that i found weird is masters also takes a common cliche and twists it because he says in a pig's ass not in a pig's eye i've never heard in a pig's ass before that's in that scene with rice right before he puts his gun in rice's mouth in this very oral phallic type of thing before he blows him away there's a lot of headshots in here and there's a lot of nut trauma like notice when he shoots waxman before he says who tastes in your ass, he shoots him in the crotch first, and then he shoots him in the head. And it's just like head crotch, head crotch, head crotch throughout this whole movie. I mean, we see, I think Jack is the guy's name who didn't have a name in the script. I think he was like gym instructor. Jack is master's uh, guy who I, I think he only says his name one time. But he has a great joy in shooting people in the face as well. So there's, again, it's like he shoots chance in the face and the the guy at rice's place gets shot in the face and i know jimmy gets shot in the face so it's just like my goodness there's a lot of headshots in this freaking likes his kink going right back to i I was reminded of a totally unrelated scene but just little kinks everywhere popeye doyle and the handcuffs when he picks up that girl for the french connection i mean everyone's got a little kink in, in 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 his films and in 
in uh, to live and die in LA, you've got we, we've already talked about the, I mean the amazing, incredibly obvious homoerotic sort of subtext, but there's lots of little things like when Grimes watching the tapes that made that 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 Masters has made of him and Bianca fucking at the very end, you know, just casually having a bit of a look and then going, oh, you might want to take these. Bianca, they're a bit personal, and I've just watched them, by the way. <laughs> you know, there's um, there's uh, Bianca and her, you know, her love, that whole weird relationship with, well, it's not weird, but that whole relationship that Masters sort of sets up with the other dancer. Little bits and pieces that per se don't relate to the film so much, but just add little kinks here and there. That is one of the other scenes that is missing that was in the script, which I found interesting. After they fuck Bianca and Masters when they're watching themselves on the videotape, there's an extra bit. What brought it to mind, Jed, was you were saying that she gets some of the most dialogue when she's talking about the dream. She also tells him a sexual fantasy that she has about Serena. And she goes into great detail talking about that, probably for a couple paragraphs. And it's interesting, that is cut, but we do get to see the results of it when Masters has brought Serena there and she's in these garters and stockings because that's, again, right out of this dialogue that she's uh, giving that we don't uh, actually see or, or hear or experience in the movie. So I'm very curious if that was ever shot because it feels like we get, you know, the, the, the sum of it, but we don't get the parts that add up to it. Andrew, a, uh, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Liam Jose on Letterboxd, his review of uh, To Live and Die in L.A. is very succinct, and I've kind of enjoyed chewing on it a little. It's, uh, he says, it's like heat for people who don't need everything explained to them, who are also <laughs> horny. <laughs> watching it, I don't remember if it was in watching the, uh, the commentary or if it was in the, uh, the Friedkin Uncut documentary. Friedkin he doesn't storyboard. He does. He, he just goes in, he shoots all this stuff and then he makes the movie in editing. And I, I think we're seeing that, you know, the script, yeah, was kind of boilerplate and clearly in his mind, he had an idea that he wasn't putting on paper here. You know, the actors brought a lot to it and, and things like that. But, but yeah, I think you shoot all this stuff and then it doesn't all get in, get in there you know maybe it was important to shoot it for the characters to understand what was going on but the audience didn't necessarily need it yeah i i, I found that that pretty interesting about his his process can we talk about actually how bad as cops how bad chance and vuka are? <laughs> sure <laughs> the crap, they, they fall asleep at the steakhouse oh my god when <laughs> partner waxman Chance lets Cody escape in the hospital. You can see that coming a million miles away. And then, of course, I think and I think we need to dwell on this a bit longer. That astounding scene, prefiguring the um, the chase scene, where they shake down the guy who's supposedly coming into LA with money to buy the diamonds, get him killed, and it ends up he's an undercover cop. I mean, these guys. I mean, that's what I mean. The revenge thing. It it, it jumps the shark so many. <laughs> this film that by the end of it it's not really clear what's going on i mean and masters masters you know willem dafoe as masters as the criminal is far smarter and actually far more arguably far more principled than than chance ever is chance is living his name you know he talks about how he used to love to jump off of his garage you know he loves 
bungee jumping. I don't know if bungee dump- jumping is still a thing these days. He loves base jumping, which I think is still a thing. And he t- and I love how he talks about how great it is when your nuts go up in your throat. And I'm just like, okay. Um, <laughs> more homoeroticism there. But yeah, he is so into that, and it feels like these things are happening to him by chance, and that Eric is the master of his own domain. He is the guy who's thinking so carefully and trying so much, and you know, you can try to press charges against them, and they will always fall through, thanks to Grimes, another great name in this movie. Frank Grimes, or grimy as he liked to be called, taught us that a man can triumph over adversity. But it's it's like, yeah, he doesn't necessarily know how to solve the crime. I think he just kind of lucks into it a lot of times. Like, happens to hear that Cody's girlfriend is an actress, and then finally it dawns on him to look her up in the Actors Guild. He isn't the smartest person in the room. Yes, absolutely. I feel so bad for Vukovic, who, towards the end, he is avenging the partner who was avenging his partner. (laughs) This guy just can't win. There's like so many revenge things going on towards the end with Vukovic. I quite like the, um, you know, there's that the, on, on the on the the DVD of the film I've got. There's the alternative ending. Oh God! The, apparently, they said that, you know that the, the the studio said to Freak, and you can't have the hero get shot in the face and killed at the end of the film. And so they made them film that alternative ending, which is Chance and Vukovic in this incredibly remote building in Alaska, having been sort of you know sent there as to sort of get them out of the way and as punishment for how much they've fucked up in the case. But I, I actually have to say, given some of the themes we've been talking about, that whole alternative ending, it, it, it's, they're like a married gay couple who have, have reconciled their differences, gone through their crazy early stages, and they're quite happy with each other now. You can tell that that scene was definitely still being worked on by some of the same people that worked on the rest of the movie because there's fucking Miller's paraphernalia in that stupid room. <laughs> and, 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 and Chance having recovered from his shot, shotgun wound to the face extraordinarily well. Like he's got both of his eyes, there's no scar, nothing has gone on with this guy. Yeah, he called it, uh, Peterson called it the Eddie Murphy ending, whereas I think it was more the Bill Murray ending because I think that's how Stripes ends. I like it. I think it worked. And I think it, it, the ending with Vukovic becoming Chance and basically saying to Ruth, actually, your life is not, you know, you're not going to get out of this life. You're now going to work for me, is the good, solid, tight, noir ending. But in a parallel world, given just how astoundingly homoerotic and 80s sexuality charged this film is, a Vukovic and Chance basically being together in this tiny little room in Alaska where they've been sort of exiled from the agency um, as agents, I think that also kind of works. There's a moment in the film that I don't understand necessarily, which is towards the end, after she takes the tapes, Bianca takes the tapes and drives off, there's a, a moment where we see, I think it's a Ford Bronco pull up outside of some place, and I'm just like, Okay, I don't know who's in the Bronco, what's in the Bronco. Like, I've never seen this this car before. I don't think it's Vukovic. That was the scene at the end where Ruth is looking outside the window of her apartment, of her crappy apartment, and you know, and Vukovic has just said a sort of very half-assed, 
uh, Vukovic as chance has come in and basically actually looking a bit like Cobra, so Sylvester Stallone in Cobra, and she looks out the window and the and the you see the the Bronco pull up. Yeah, so maybe that is Vukovic. Well, or is it just thinking? Is it just her reliving? Her trauma of everything that Chance, you know, because Chance drove the Bronco, I think, isn't didn't he? Didn't he drive the Bronco? I know he drove a truck, but I didn't know I if think, it was that. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was Chance's truck. Okay, and and I got that that she was just reliving the trauma of what Chance had done to her, and now she's got another chance. Because we do have these weird flashes of Chance during that moment, during that uh, that period of time where Vukovic is coming in and saying, you're working for me now. There's a moment where we see Chance, and then if you watch this thing all the way through the end credits, that same image comes up at the after the end credit. It's like, okay, this is interesting. It's like he is haunting this film. The only thing that I miss about that alternative ending which I do think is hilarious, and I kind of wish they would put that at the very end um, of the credits. Is uh, the only thing that I miss is that there's more Bob Downey in there. I was so happy that Bob Downey is in this movie. I kind of wonder if him and Friedkin met while they were both doing the Twilight Zone series, because this was right around that same time, and Friedkin was doing a segment called Nightcrawlers, and I think Downey was—I know he was in one, and I think he directed a segment as well. I mean, this is all from doing a podcast on the 1985 version of Twilight Zone. I have to know these stupid things. And I know Peterson was also in a, an episode of the Twilight Zone right around that same time, too. So a lot of star power. What did you guys think of the Wayne Chung score? I think it's maybe appropriate for talking about counterfeit because uh, the first few times it's less grating to me now than it was uh, the first several times I I watched it. But uh I don't know. Something about it feels so artificial in an '80s kind of way. Maybe it is really appropriate. That's it's not one that I get into much. That's why it works so well. I think that artificial electronic sort of pop. Uh, well, uh, did you not like it? I mean, have you got a view? Is is Wen Chung up on up there with with or down there with Tarantino for you or something like that? No, no. I enjoyed the score, actually. I, I thought that it was very effective. I laughed when he went into the strip club and they're playing dance hall days a little bit, just because that has a different context for me, more thinking of like the music video and stuff. The rest of the Wang Chung music, I thought, fit very well with it. I didn't even mind the To Live and Die in L.A. song. I thought it was a very solid song. And even using the title of the film in the film, I thought worked very well. And that theme that comes up repeatedly through the movie that you hear in the opening credits when Eric is doing his, a.k.a. Rick uh, Masters is doing his um, counterfeiting work. I think that's a very solid theme. And I got a little tired of it after watching the extras because they would bring that up at the end of every single extra. But I was okay with it in the movie. I thought it was a good idea to use a band from the time. And I noticed that it doesn't get the shit that other musical artists did at the time when it was like, hey, Toto's doing the theme from Dune. You know, it's like, I guess because Toto just sounds funny, but I thought it worked well to have Wang Chung being the sound of this. And I think it also tapped into what we're talking about before that kind of uh, Jan Hammer-esque uh, Miami Blues theme. I thought it, it also recalled that a little bit. Mike said Miami Blues. He means Miami Vice. Because the, the, the big thing now, it seems, is to take in, in crime films, 
especially during the really violent parts, is to take an old song and repurpose it on top of that violent sort of scene and, and thus make you think about the song differently. Well, yeah, ever since Reservoir Dogs, I've noticed that happening. <laughs> oh, but I, I thought I'd noticed it happening ever since um, Animal Kingdom, where they had the police are busting the, the crime family and there's uh, air, the Air Supply song playing. I love that Air Supply song now. I got to say, when that came out, I, I, I listened to that that song a lot because of that movie. <laughs> I think they do something similar in the second chapter of It, which I haven't seen that yet. I really have no desire after watching the first chapter, but I remember people complaining about that quite a bit. It was just like, why the fuck are they playing the song over this scene? It doesn't make any sense. And not even in an ironic way, like stuck in the middle with you. I think that goes back to at least like Scorsese, right? I mean, he's always, always done that. And uh, I mean, who thinks of, you know, when you hear Layla now, who doesn't think of Goodfellas? You know, it, it even there's just the soaring, beautiful bit over the montage of grisly murders discoveries. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it, it's longer, longer standing than uh um, you know, my, my son has been interested in Scorsese lately and has um, some some he's liked better than others. But um, the other uh, day he made reference to, uh, you know, how much he liked uh, uh, the Ronettes and, because of uh, Mean Streets. And, you know, and he's like, yeah, I just want to watch like uh, violent crime movies with happy pop songs over them and <laughs> so yeah i mean it, it goes back a long long way i wanted to make one note about uh when you guys were when you were talking about how bad the cops are and not only uh andrew was great because uh, i totally uh fell asleep on them falling asleep uh during the uh you know a murder ta- like they're watching the place and they miss the guy getting murdered uh well, the other cops, uh, the federal cops, miss their guy getting kidnapped. You know, I mean, he just—it's uh, like all all levels of uh, of fucking up. And and the the beginning where he's on the presidential security detail, you know, somehow the guy that Chance ends up uh, thwarting uh, got through all the other security with a bomb. So yeah, I mean, it's just constantly. Constantly, uh, the cops messing up in this one. That opening is interesting because the guys, I mean, it, it really presages what we're about to see Chance do. Because we see him on the roof and he's got a rope around his leg and a rope around like a pipe up there. And so it's like he's just about to bungee jump almost off of this roof or at least lower himself down. And then he explodes. And that also kind of presages uh, Master's death as well. The whole thing, too, with Master's setting his his picture on fire right at the very beginning. It's just like, okay, yeah, you're going to die this way, dude. But, you know, it's it's a nice way to foreshadow how these characters live and die in L.A. The one bit of the film you were saying earlier about bits that you hadn't quite hadn't quite worked for you. The one bit that I wasn't clear about is whatever happens to Cody. 
Yeah, because he gets taken down, but we never really see anything that happens after that. I guess he just goes back to jail? I don't know. I mean, it, the whole thing with Ko, I mean, I think Taturo's great as the character, but that's a very, that's a really weird sort of, he's he's got a sort of strange role in the film, you know, because he's in and he's out and he's, Chance basically loses him after busting out of getting him out of prison. And then that sort of, say, I know, I think he top cops a little bit of crap from his boss for that, but not really very much. You know, it's the 80s. What's another federal prisoner? What's another federal prisoner just lost? I don't know. It's, but, and then, and then, yes, Chance manages to track him down to his girlfriend's house, who just happens to be an acting student, I think, and then takes him and then we never see him again. Yeah, maybe that was something shot and just left out. I don't remember the novel, what, what happened with him. I don't remember anything more with him in the script either, to be honest. The script follows a lot of stuff pretty darn closely, but I like the extras that they added to it. And they even even in that 84 script, like I thought that Chance would have made it out alive, but he's dead by the end of it. I was very shocked that he dies in even that early draft. Yeah, the book uh, ends in a. Um, it's probably the biggest difference from from the movie is is the ending in the book, but it's also kind of equally grim in that both partners, uh, Chance and Vukovic, have made deals, have crafted escape plans for themselves to sell sell their partner out to avoid you know, going to prison for a long time. They've both put in place a plan with their lawyers and then chance ends up murdered. He ends up dying at the end of the book, but he's shot by other cops. It's a very dark ending. And it, it really, I, I was very surprised pleasantly when I was reading it. Cause I knew the ending was going to be different than the movie. I'd heard that, but uh, yeah, I thought both endings work really well. Though not as good as them sitting in Nome, Alaska, pining away. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first is with editor Scott Smith, and the second is with Eric Masters himself, or Rick Masters, the one and only Willem Dafoe. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Dusty McGowan's latest book, The Devil is Alive and Well, The Auteur's Cut, is available now in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook. Mental illness, isolation, and death? Now, that's my idea of a good time. Does the devil himself spend his off hours in dive bars? Where do Egyptian mummies go when they just can't seem to pass away? These and many other important questions are answered in this collection of stories that blend magic, realism, and dark comedy. The Devil is Alive and Well, the auteur's cut, may be found on Amazon, Apple Books, Audible, and all fine booksellers. Dark Destinations is a travelogue podcast unlike any other. Cities and towns distinguished by their oddity and the fact that they don't exist. Join us at Dark Destinations, where we explore the most infamous locations to be found in fiction. From Arkham to Zyera and every point in between, we risk life, limb, and our sanity for your listening pleasure. Dark Destinations can be found at FatherMalone.com and on iTunes. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. 
If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. I'm very curious, how did you get into the business? How did you decide that you wanted to be an editor? Nepotism. My father, his name is Bud Smith. Um, he's a, a well-known editor in the industry. He's cut many films. If you were to look up his credits, you'd go, wow, really? He cut all these films. As a young man in high school, it was a summer vacation, and my father asked me, hey, I'm going to be going down to shoot this film called Sorcerer. I'd like for you to come down and, and check it out. And so I, I said, sure, you know, summer vacation, go down to the Dominican Republic. I knew nothing of it. At the age 16, he uh, brought me down on location, introduced me. That's where I met Billy Friedkin the first time, introduced me to Billy and hooked me up with a prop master. His name was Barry Bedding. And um, I got to actually spend the summer working on location on a film called Sorcerer. That's where I got introduced to the industry. After we finished shooting, we did, I mean, I spent probably six months on location. And after that, brought the film back to Los Angeles and uh, it went into post-production. My father being the editor, he said, here, now I would like to introduce you to another side of films and, and come in and, and I'll teach you about editing. And, so, and I said, yeah, sure. So I had no idea what, what to expect because I'd never participated in any of that and so when i came into the editing room i started to watch what they were doing you know working with friedkin and you know actually working with the film and watching them you know actually cut a movie and and start to tell a story and bring it to life in the editing room i went wow this is it's very it's very interesting to watch how it was being put together and watching the mechanics of it and that's what that's what kind of drew me to it and and you know uh, that's how how I got into the business was through my father, Bud Smith. Um, he's an amazing, amazing director, amazing um, editor, and also a, a very talented producer. Uh, just a a good filmmaker. So as a as a young man, I got introduced to it very early, and um, and I just uh, I fell into it. I loved it. I thought it was great. I, I just continued on. He, my father said. 
your son. I'm going to introduce you to this. I'm going to try and help you get into the union. And once he, once he helped me get into the union, he fired me and said, okay, here you go. Now, good luck. I'll see you later. <laughs> so the nepotism part of it was, is great. I mean, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's well known in the industry that, you know, it's, it's a family affair, so to speak. There's a lot of, you know, family helps family. So as a young man, that's how I got introduced to it was through my father. Over the course of time, you know, he continued on with his career and I started to, you know, learn as an apprentice film editor. I became an assistant, you know, over the course of a couple of years because it, it was part of the, uh, the requirements in the in the editor's guild. You had to serve an apprenticeship for a couple of years. I think it was three years. And then you could move up to an assistant. And, you know, as long as you completed the proper amounts of time, you could move up the ladder. And so I did. I, I, I just moved on, didn't work with my father for quite a few years. And he called me out of the blue and said, what are you doing? So I'm over here working on this. And he said, um, I'm going to be doing a film and it's called Flashdance. And he said, but I'm not going to be in Los Angeles to do it because I'm out here on the East Coast finishing this film. Would you be able to go in and think the dailies on this film for me and i said sure because i was an assistant at the time and i just happened to be wrapping up a, a television show and so i went over to paramount introduced myself to the post-production people there and they proceeded to take me down show me some editing rooms and say here this is where we're going to be uh <laughs> doing post-production on Flashdance." I didn't have a chance to read the script or anything. You know, I just uh, helped my father out. And, you know, they started shooting and we would bring in, you know, the film would come in from the lab and I'd start thinking dailies and take them over to the screening room and, and uh, screen it for, for the production. And my father was actually wrapping up his film. And after a couple of weeks, he came in and jumped on it. And I ended up staying on and uh, worked with him on Flashdance. Um so that's uh, uh, that nepotism thing. It was it's it's a good thing. It's been it's been very good to me in my career. Um, and over like I say, over the course of my career, um, you know, we would get together and cut a film together, and then I would go off and cut films, and he would continue with his career. And he ultimately uh, became a studio executive at Universal, and um, was also a studio executive at Disney. You know, over the course of many years working on lots of different films, he taught me how to how to edit on film. And when the digital transition came in, I just seamlessly moved into digital. And um, when he wrapped up his his um, years of working as an executive, he wanted to get back into the editing. So when he wanted to transition back in, he had a film he wanted to work on. And so I said, you know what? why don't I teach you how to do electronically what you taught me how to do on film? So we got together and worked, you know, we worked on a couple of films, um, you know, to, to get him back up to speed. So I gave him back what he was, you know, so kind as, you know, to give me. And, you know, over the course of a long time, I'm saying probably 40 years, you know, we've worked on films together. We've worked on films separately, but uh, had a long run of uh, post-production together. I can't think of a better film to get your feet wet on than Sorcerer, just because it's like those intro scenes to the characters are like little mini movies in and of themselves, much less the meat of the story where it is just, I mean, especially towards the end where it gets so 
tense, and I'm sure that each cut had to be just so precise in order to keep that tension and keep ratcheting that up. It's it's a film that, um, and I, I don't want to say this in a negative avenue here, but I'm going to take it down. It's a film that wasn't seen by a lot of people, because when that film opened up, it opened up against Star Wars. The very same, so so it got slammed by Star Wars. Sorcerer, I think, is probably one of my, my most favorite films. I mean, not only having worked on it, but just to watch it. You know, it's a pretty intense film. It's a, it's a good ride. And I think what Billy had put together, you know, the tension, along with the music, bringing in Tangerine Dream and having them score the film, it made it such a, uh, it enhanced it in a way that um, only Billy could do. I mean, he knows he's, he's just an amazing director, an amazing man. He's a, a, incredibly uh, talented with music. Watching him craft that film and being a part of that was, uh, you know, it's just another one of those those incredible moments that uh, that I just look back on and say, wow, how how grateful am I to have started my career out there and over the over the course of a long period of time, I was able to cut a couple of his films. Now that's uh, that's just something that you know doesn't just happen. It was uh, a very interesting. <laughs> A very interesting career working with Billy on and off over the course of probably 20 years. He's an amazing man, a director that's um, very commanding on set, but but a complete opposite in the editing room. Very calm, very relaxed, very, you know, just a real, yeah, fun guy to work with in the editing room. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, but then to work with him on set, he's, you know, he's, he's a powerful director, you know, to be able to, to, enjoy working with him in both both avenues both during production and in post-production and I'm, I'm very grateful that i've had a chance to work with him you know worked with him on sorcerer i was able to work with him on the brinks job we did a television movie up in canada called cat squad then um, working on to live and die in la and then uh, i think the last thing i did with billy is we we re re-digitally mastered a film um, called Cruising. Are you familiar with Cruising? Yeah, we did an episode on Cruising. It's such a fascinating film. Yes, that that film when when it was when Billy was making that movie, I didn't get a chance to work on on the, the actual feature. I only got to work on it when we remastered it. Um, when they did that film, um, one of the things that uh, that was happening while they were shooting it, there was a lot of people that were not happy about <laughs> about them making that movie. You know the the the, the storyline was pretty intense, and so the uh, the gay community was anti cruising. So what they would do is they would literally go out to set and just try to cause a ruckus and make a lot of noise. I mean, literally blowing whistles and stuff. You know, they were they were sabotaging the soundtrack. And so when Billy when when he shot it, he just said, you know what, let's just keep shooting, guys, and and. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to end up looping the whole movie, which he did. So when he had a, you know, when he had his his cut, everything in the entire film had to be looped. When they finished that film and and put it into the theaters, it was it was done in mono, so it wasn't like a stereo soundtrack. So when I got called, hey, can you come in and help us, you know, remaster this film? We had to find all the negative, which was, you know, scattered around. It wasn't just um, vaulted properly. We had to do a lot of searching to, to locate the stuff. 
when we started to actually find the negative and be able to regenerate the movie, Billy said, you know what, I want to, I want to spread the soundtrack on this guys, you know, cause we've, now we're living in this 5.1 age of, you know, amazing sound. So we had to go, go back and, and find the original audio tracks, the original music cues, and then just go ahead and remaster the soundtrack in 5.1, which is amazing. I mean, you take a, uh, you know, a mono film that comes out of the center of the screen. Like if you're watching it, you know, the sound just comes out of the center and then you spread it and put it into a 5.1, you know, remixing that whole film was amazing because we had an opportunity to do it and, you know, completely recolor correct the entire film and completely regenerate the entire soundtrack and make it into, you know, this dynamic, you know, big movie. And um, so the, you know, the remastering, I mean, it took us months to do that. And then mixing it, you know, we were able to, you know, remix the entire film. Now it's, now it's in a 5.1 surround, which is just an amazing, (laughs) take that film and now watch it in that soundtrack. Wow. It's amazing. Um, So, and again, being able to work with Billy in recreating some of his stuff, you know, what he's able to do now with technology was, you know, just fun to watch him do, do what he does. Um, you know, very creative guy. I'm such a nut about when we watched Cruising for the episode. I had heard that there were different cuts of it floating around. So I found an old VHS and digitized that and then had the, the current DVD release at the time. And took those two things and synced them up as much as I possibly could and was seeing slightly more in some aspects than others and definitely seeing a huge color shift between the two. One was so much more blue than the other version. Sure. Well, and again, you know, when when you when you take and, you know, you're working in a, in a film lab, I mean, it's amazing what we could do in the film lab. But then you go back to the original negative, find that negative. And then, you know, bring it into the digital arena. It's just, there's so much more latitude and many more colors that you can work with. And being such a dark, a dark film anyway, I mean, photo, you know, photographed dark. A lot of the scenes in those bars are just dark for a reason. You don't want to see what's actually happening. <laughs> you know, when Billy shoots these things, it's, he's, he's going for authenticity. So a lot of that stuff was, you know, printed dark for a reason. And you lighten it up and all of a sudden you start seeing what you really don't want to see. So bring it back down. But you can digitally enhance other other portions of the screen and, you know, adjust focus and tweak stuff. And then they're watching him, you know, play with the, the tools that were available. It's just it's just fun to watch him do what he does. You know, here, let's try this. Let's do this. And, and, you know, you surround yourself with the right technicians, the right mixer, the right color colorist, you know, look at the new product, man. It's a, it's a pretty amazing looking film. I mean, some people won't like the story, <laughs> but uh, technically speaking now, you know, the latest to the re-digital, re-digitized masters, pretty amazing. When you said you were comparing the two, I think you may have noticed in the re-digitized, the new master. There's some more, I want to call them like flash frames, you know, little visual treats that were added to some of that, that were enhanced, that weren't in the original version. Billy went ahead and, you know, he um, he wanted to enhance it, so he did. And uh, if you were to run the two side by side, you'll notice that one will have a little bit more trickery built into it than the other. 
I'm, I'm not going to tip my hand, but there's, yeah, there's some vision there that you'll, you'll probably go, wow, that I, I don't remember seeing that. <laughs> One of the treats of working with Mr. Friedkin, he loves to experiment. Um, you know, it's like I, I did a uh, Laura Branigan video with him in the mid 1980s. And, um, and he had an idea of how to, how to make this imagery come together. And he, he had to, he shot it in multiple layers, and then we composited this. You know, it's all shot on film. This wasn't, you know, in the digital arena. Um, and he had a he had a great vision. And once we we shot it in Los Angeles, and then we took it back to New York to finish it. And then we flew back there for a couple of days and uh, went into Telecine, and he was able to put this video together and actually sync up what he had in his mind. We couldn't do in the editing because we just couldn't do it. If we weren't, you know, we were cutting on film. But in the in the edit bay, he was able to say, "Okay, can you bring this in? Sync that up to here. Now marry that together, and all of a sudden, boom! There it is. It, what what he was seeing in his mind, we couldn't do on film, but he could do it digitally. And so that was, you know, that was kind of a treat sitting there watching him be able to achieve in the edit bay what we couldn't do in our editing room, which is just, you know, compositing." You know, shots like today, everybody's, you know, it's just a natural thing. Well, you know, you blue screen, you bring in all the visuals and marry them all together. Now you have a, a wonderful image. Well, it wasn't available to us back then, but he wanted to he wanted to experiment with it and see what he could do by capturing capturing it on film and then compositing it inside of a telecine bay. And if you look at the, it was called, um, what was it called? Laura Brannigan, I Need You Tonight was the name of the, the song. If you were to find that video, I'm sure it's out there on YouTube, and just look at it. And what, what he was able to do is take this the artist and have her walk down these hallways, and these hands would come like sliding through the walls, reaching out, trying to grab her. So it's just compositing it. You know, he knew what he wanted, but we just couldn't do it on the cam. You know, we're sitting on a cam. I could sync up a shot, but it just wasn't like a composite. So anyways, that was uh, another one of those um, working with Billy, you know, playing with technology. He knew what he wanted to do. Now let me see if we can do it in here. You know, he was he's just a just a real, you know, cutting edge kind of a director back then. And, you know, just a, uh, just a pleasure to work with, you know, watching his mind work and then watching the finished product. It's like, wow. Tell me about uh, To Live and Die in L.A. because that's another one where – the opening credits are amazing. The chase scene is, I mean, he outdoes himself with the chase scene and just the, the, the rest of the film is all, it's so tight and just not a wasted shot in the whole film. Well, to live and die in LA. And again, at the, at the time that that was shot budgets, like budgets were, were very people looking after their money. And it was, it was like, the amount of money, and I'm not going to use dollar figures, the amount of money that was put up for that film, at the time, you would call it a low-budget movie. But what was put onto the screen was not a low-budget movie. And again, it's just Billy being able to, to do what he likes to do, which is create stuff you know, and bring people together and bring pros together to be able to accomplish stuff that most people wouldn't be able to do. Um, so with the amount that he had... I mean, he utilized every penny of that. And um, I mean, that was a film, again, you know, he had a vision. Um, at the time, everybody was shooting on Kodak and Fuji had come out and had a very soft, pastel look to um, 
to the prints that we were, we shot a bunch of um, camera tests and stuff. And Billy said, you know, I think I'm going to do this one on Fuji. And so we, he shot some stuff. We'd go in the lab and look at it. And he said, okay, cool. See what I can do with this negative and what I can play with the colors, the spectrum. And so when he shot to live and die in LA, he already had a, he had a visual of what, how he wanted to achieve this film and what he wanted the end product to look like. So, you know, photographing that thing was, um, it was, uh, and, and I, and I don't want to say it was crazy, but what he was able to capture and do, and, you know, only Billy Friedkin can do. And again, having a visual, having an image that he wanted to, to capture and wanted to put on the screen, it's like, okay, how do you get that? And when you bring up the main title, um, a lot of that stuff was shot by my father. He was like second unit director, co-producer on To Live and Die in L.A. And I was I was the, the lead editor. So working with the three of the three of us was was amazing. I mean, watching Billy shoot, my dad would go out and shoot certain things and they'd come back and they'd look at it. And, you know, and I'd start cutting some stuff and they'd go, wow, cool. Now we need to do this, this and this. And so as as they're shooting, you know, you're cutting and then you're you know, generating the story. And then they go back out and they shoot more and they start filling it in. It was just just one of those movies where now all of a sudden, you know, you, I look at it now and I go, wow. It's just a, it's just a, another piece of art that Billy was able to capture, you know, and put on the screen and get, get these wonderful actors, you know, who were like, look at Willem, Willem Dafoe. Okay. He wasn't, he wasn't Willem until he did to live and die in LA. <laughs> you know, Billy saw him, put him on the screen and said, here we go. And, uh, you know, using William Peterson, nobody knew who William Peterson was at the time. He's just a young actor. You know, he grabbed that actor and turned him into this agent, you know, who was a pretty tough, a tough agent in the film. And, um, you know, being able to take the talent and then take his imagery and then take, again, another soundtrack, you know, and just marry this stuff together. And, and the, the end product is just absolutely amazing. And again, I'll say this like I did with Sorcerer. When, when To Live and Die in L.A. came out, it didn't have the draw. It didn't have the uh, the marketing that um, some of the bigger pictures had. So a lot of people missed that one. And But nowadays, if you look at it, you go, wow, what a great film. How did I miss that? You know, it's, working with Billy on some of his films, you know, he's he's just got such a good eye and he's got such a good... Um, a good way of crafting a film and getting getting the talents to come together and 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 putting it all together. I mean, it just is it's just a special a special filmmaker. You know, to live and die in L.A. You know, at the chase scene, you know, the backward backwards freeway and all that stuff. That was, you know, again, it's one of those things where Billy's thinking, you know, I I, I have to do this, this, and this, and people are going, you know what? I, I don't think that that doesn't sound like a good idea. And he'd say, okay, great, well, we're going to do it anyway. And so when he surrounded himself with the stunt guys, you know, they're some amazing, amazing guys. You know, Bobby Bass, Buddy Joe Hooker. I mean, just just some of the cream of the crop back then. You know, when you when you put these talents together and you say, hey, let's get something going here. And these guys get behind it. And, uh, you know, they start doing things that most people probably wouldn't do. And Billy's capturing it on film. It's like, wow. OK. You know, and then you bring it into the editing room, go, OK, what are we going to do with this? <laughs> 
you know, it's like, okay, well, Billy, okay, here, what do we want to do? And he says, okay, well, we're going to do this, this, and this. And so you put it together and you run it for him. And he says, well, that's what I asked for, but that's not what I want. Now we're going to do this, this, and this. And so you, you were constantly crafting stuff and experimenting. And, um, you know, when he, had, when he, I mean, again, just a brilliant mind, you know, watching him guide you through what he wants to do. You know, and then we sit down and I start cutting it and working on it, making presentations. And Bud, my father would come in and he'd, you know, as an editor, he'd come in and start cutting too. And To Live and Die in L.A. is one of, one of those films that it took a lot of work, it took a lot of work to get it onto its feet. But then once we had it on its feet, how do you enhance it? You know, and the soundtrack is just amazing. I mean, if you were to pick it apart and I mean, in, as, as a young editor, being able to um, work with Billy, actually, when we would cut most of the films, he would work at Todd A.O., which was in Hollywood. It's a, the sound stages in Hollywood. He had his office there and, and that's where we had our editing rooms. And that's where we did all of our sound, all of our mixing and all of our recording, fully looping and all that stuff. And um, so having that at your fingertips when you're cutting, having all your sound designers, your sound effects crew, your composer, your, your artists, I mean, all in the same building was, was it's just like kind of magic when you're working on a film like that with Billy, because he can just kind of move around and go and work with the sound designer, come back into the editing room, work with you for a little while. And then he'd kind of go away and then he'd come back and look at your stuff. And it was just a real, a, a good workflow. You know that he had put together. You know by by having all of his all of the post production talent in the same building. Now it's smart smart filmmaking. Uh, but you know when we were doing To Live and Die in L.A., I mean it just uh, a lot a lot of work went into that soundtrack. And I mean down to the details of like you know if you were to light a cigarette and drop drop your uh, match in a, into an ashtray, I mean you would hear everything about that. You know, he's, he's very um, detail-oriented. And, um, you know, that's just, and again, I don't know, it's one of those films that if you watch it, you go, wow, that's really cool. But being part of it and knowing what it takes to get that film on the screen, a lot of talented people were uh, put together on that one. Um, you know, and then bringing in Wang Chung to to score that, um, that was a, uh, I don't know when, when it first happened, it's like, wow, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> At the time I'm thinking, Wang Chung, yeah, it doesn't sound like a good fit, but then Billy got together, you know, and, and did what he does. You know, he goes and he works with the artists, they go off, they do their thing. And then, um, you know, they would send us cues, all this wonderful music would come in and Billy would, you know, I'd, I'd have it transferred on the 35 millimeter because we're all cutting on film and Billy would listen to it in his office and he would, you know, he had cassette tapes and stuff. And then he would come into the editing room and he'd say, okay, I want to take this cue and we're going to put it in that scene. I was like, okay, great. Let's try it. And so we would, you know, start working with the music and then start working with the sequences and starting to get a flow, you know, where, and again, I, I'm going to go backwards and say Wang Chung. I didn't think it was going to be a fit, but ultimately what a wonderful soundtrack it became. You know, they, uh, those guys just put together a wonderful, uh, a wonderful score for that film and watching Billy craft it, you know, and being their part of it, you know, and then taking it into the dubbing stages and then mixing it all together. It was just like, wow, it came together really well. <laughs>
just another one of those wonderful movies that uh, I don't know, not a lot of people saw it. But uh, you know, if you look at it today, uh, compared to um, you know some of the product that's out there today, to live and die in LA has a much slower pace than what we're used to now. The the flow of that film, it has rhythm, it has pace, and it has flow. That that film is a very well crafted movie. It's just too bad, you know, it didn't. It doesn't get the uh, the recognition that that it deserves. Tell me a little bit about how you got the role and where you were in your career at this point. You know, I was, uh, I had made some movies, but it was very, quite early in my career. I, I, I think we shot it in 83, maybe 84, let's say. I had made some films, but I was principally uh, uh, a theater actor uh, working with a company in New York called the Wooster Group. So that was my day to day life. And I can't remember how I got the call. I was soliciting work. I had an agent, but not so, so aggressively. My my day-to-day was really theater. But I remember that I got a call somehow to meet with uh, uh, William Friedkin. And I was very excited, of course. I read the script. I thought it was fantastic. And it was a fairly direct casting uh situation. I got in a room with him, we chatted, and then um, shortly after he said, okay, I want you to play this role. One of the things that I do remember that always stuck with me is in that initial meeting, now granted, I had made very few films at that point. I I had made Catherine Bigelow and Monty Montgomery's The Loveless. I had made a couple of tiny downtown films and uh, also Walter Hill's uh, Streets of Fire. Billy Friedkin said, I want this film to have a reality. So I want to cast people that people don't have associations with, that we've never seen before, that are coming out of nowhere. (laughs) I thought that was kind of an interesting thing to say to an actor. It was about right, but I thought that was funny. So, you know, he went to um, Billy Peterson. Uh, Billy Peterson, who was a theater actor, basically, at that point, went to Chicago uh, and checked out Billy and cast him in the main role. And then Johnny Pankow, who was doing movies, I believe. Uh, In fact, I did a cameo with him in um, the Tony Scott vampire movie, The Hunger. We both did a cameo together in that movie. Pankow had done done some movies, but he was basically a Chicago and New York uh, theater actor. thing I remember is this was a film that felt very much outside of the industry. It felt very independent. Of course, uh, William Friedkin was a huge figure in Hollywood, but I think this was a moment where he was stepping back and he wanted to control uh, this thing absolutely, make a smaller film, make it down and dirty, make it with basically unknowns. And that was that at that point, that was uh, very interesting to me. And that really colored his approach because his thing was all about real, 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 real. And in working on the movie, we did really, you hear this all the time from actors, but uh, we did really substantial research and lived some of those lives and also peppered throughout uh, the movie are people 
that were real Secret Service guys, real cops, real criminals, real counterfeiters, this sort of thing. So uh, that was very attractive to me. You know, he's basically a guy that does two things. He makes art and he counterfeits. And uh, so I learned how to do those things. Uh, I got set up with a painter. I started painting. I also um, learned how to counterfeit uh, step by step, with, uh, with, which at that point, in fact, there's a beautiful montage in the movie where you really see quite vividly how, how money is counterfeited, which, to tell you the truth, isn't a big deal because with new advances in um, printing, it's actually quite easy to counterfeit money. The difficulty is passing it and, and getting the proper paper and also uh, the, the government, the Secret Service has a great record of bringing down counterfeiters because they basically said they follow the equipment. When they see certain kinds of equipment go to certain places, they surveil it and then wait until they start printing and then they bust them. So paper's hard to imitate. That's what gives away a lot of counterfeit money. I'm sure it's much more sophisticated now, but in those days, paper was the big deal and uh, the cops would wait, follow the equipment. They would see buys of certain equipment. They'd make kind of combinations of certain equipment and they'd say, okay, these guys are out to print some money. They'd find out where they were, they'd surveil them, and then they'd wait until they started printing and passing money and then bust them. So I was in that world a little bit. I was, uh, you know, meeting with some of these secret service agents, some of these guys that specialize in going against counterfeiters just so I knew what the drill was. Also, Billy was great. I mean, he, uh, William Friedkin gave me some video equipment and gave me some people to work with. And uh, I was not only painting, but I was playing around with some uh, video art, which very little make, made it into the movie, just uh, seconds. But it certainly rooted what I was doing. And I, I was creating a, <laughs> a, a double life there. I had heard that uh, Freak had actually shot rehearsals or first takes quite a few times just to, to keep that freshness there. I don't know. You know, he, that certainly sounds like him. I mean, he's really courageous and fun to work with because he's, you know, he doesn't things flatten out very quickly for him. So he likes the heat turned up. He likes a little edge to things. He likes challenges. I think that's, that's where he gets most excited and he has a nose for those challenges. So he's great fun to work with, but I think that's probably true. You don't always have the comfort zone is quite small because you're moving pretty fast, particularly in this. And he didn't work things too much. He prepared a lot. He, he let you um, do a lot of research and know what you were doing quite well. But my memory is that, yeah, that's probably true. We, uh, we didn't um, overwork things. It was very, we were very light on our feet. And also in the same vein, Often he would, um, you know, you'd come to work expecting one scene and he'd be like, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do something else, you know, but it was thrilling. And we were, uh, most of us were either very new actors or had worked very little. So uh, we were game. I think uh, it was a good group of people that didn't really have 
demands or didn't, uh, weren't fussy about a way of working because we were totally in uh, to the way he wanted to work, which is a great way to work, uh, you know, when you submit to the director's vision, and he certainly had a vision. You go uh, in the buff a few times in the movie. Did you have any concerns about that? No, no, I have no problem with that. I didn't have a problem with it then, and I don't have a problem with it now. I didn't think so. You seem to to strip down quite often. Uh, uh, You know, I'm a performer. Uh, Performers use use their bodies. How was it working with uh, Deborah Feuer? Because you share probably the most scenes with her. I liked her very much. uh, She was wonderful and has a very particular quality in it. So... We hung out, you know, we uh, we play uh, lovers in it. So it was nice to hang out and get to know each other. And she was cool. She was very cool. She was cool and she made me feel cool. <laughs> I imagine that uh, William Friedkin didn't mind ad-libbing. And I'm curious if you had the room to be able to explore different aspects of that. You know, in spirit, yes but not like ad-libbing, like creating lots of dialogue. I think probably more with uh, Billy Peterson and John Pankow because they're they're cops and they're chattering and they're hanging out a little bit more. My character is a little more uh, precise and speaks more, uh, you know, he's more laconic. Uh, so it wasn't so much that I was inventing dialogue. But yeah, he... Uh, if something's happening, Billy wants to capture it, and and he doesn't like stuff canned, you know. Um, he was very alive. He was really on fire uh, for this, and uh, and there was some improvisation, but not so much on my part. I do remember, for example, I was very embarrassed because there was one scene where um, I I go to this guy's house. And make a long story short, he attacks me and he grabs a piece of his African art and hits me with it. But then I get the upper hand and I shoot him. And before I deliver the the final shot, there's a nice close up and I pick up the piece of African art. And I remember I improvised a line and I said, uh, 18th century Cameroon. Yes, your taste is in your ass. And then I shoot him. Well, I thought it was funny because at that time, I suppose I didn't know African art well. And uh, it just seemed like uh, Rick Masters would have a, wouldn't be into African art. Well, to make a long story short, that was part of Billy's personal collection that he dressed the stage with. <laughs> so I inadvertently, um, Rick Masters inadvertently uh, passed judgment on Billy's taste <laughs> in African art. <laughs> I have to tell you, that is my favorite line from the entire film. Ah, okay. Well, that's, that's, my, that's my little contribution, as I recall. Were there many scenes that you remember being shot that didn't end up in the final film? I don't recall that much. Probably less for my character, maybe more for um, maybe the Billy Peterson, Darlene Flugel stuff, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't recall. I have talked to actors before, and they absolutely love when they get to play villains. And I was curious about your opinion on that. I don't know, because, you know, the whole point of, of playing characters is uh, you're inhabiting them. You're being them. And, 
I, I don't think in terms of villains and heroes and all that stuff. You're trying to humanize them. You're trying to make them specific. I would say that characters that don't live conventionally or, or go against society sometimes are interesting characters to play because they're breaking the rules and not always, you know, so that's kind of a guilty pleasure. But this character is very interesting because he's got a weird kind of morality, even though he's a, a killer, a criminal and an artist. Um, but there's a, it's, it's skewed. It's not, you know, you don't want him as your next door neighbor or your uh, father or your uh, brother. But um, I, I never thought of clearly as he functions in the story, he's a villain, but I, I don't stand outside of rules like that. You know, you're aware of how they function in the story, but inside the scene, you're not thinking, Oh, I, I really love playing this villain because you're not thinking that way. So I I have really no opinion about that. I can only say that sometimes, you know, it's nice to do things that you aren't allowed to do in life and then try to imagine the psychology or, or, or where those impulses come from and uh, how satisfying or not satisfying they are. You can't have good without bad. So, uh, you know, it's all, it's all the same uh, ball of wax. It's just you're on one side one time and you're on the other another. One of my other favorite roles of yours is uh, John Latour in Light Sleeper. And I guess mm -hmm. he also has a moral code. He's a drug dealer, but he yeah. has such a strong moral code to him. It's true. It's true. They're very different characters, but I think, yeah, that's true. John Latour uh, does some criminal things, but he's not a bad guy. <laughs> Would you mind, can I ask you a little bit about White Sands? It's a, yeah, I'd be happy to talk about it because that's a movie I really enjoyed doing. I liked uh, working with Roger Danielson a lot. I liked uh, the cast. It was a great adventure. And it was a movie that, you know, had a very complicated story. And I, I think it's one of those movies that didn't get a great distribution. And it was basically an independent film. I think it was distributed through Warner Brothers, but through it was Morgan Creek or something like that. So I think it never really got its day in court. So I'm happy to talk about it. I really enjoyed it. We shot in a very beautiful part of uh, New Mexico. I had a lot of fun things to do in that movie. Great cast. Yeah, if you, if you, if for your listeners that haven't seen it, they should check it out. White Sands. I read an early draft of that one, and it seemed... I don't want to say incredibly different. It felt like your wife had more of a uh, a through line in that and that you're really tempted to go to that dark side. And I was curious how that was playing that small town sheriff who then becomes embroiled in that darkness. And how is that to, uh, to portray how fun maybe the darkness is? Uh, now you're bringing it back to me. I kind of forgot that aspect of it. No, it's, it's, it was, it's a very complicated story, very convoluted story, but uh, it's basically about a, a, the sheriff that uh, has to be someone else into, uh, a, to, in order to invest, to basically go undercover, I guess is basically what it is. But he's a small down sheriff. For him to take this walk on the wild side is interesting because in some ways he's drawn to it and it takes him to places that he's not able to go in life but he would like to go 
and uh, places that uh, are dangerous to go. So it's it's an interesting, the psychology of that character uh, was interesting. You know, the uh, how he was feeling was always considered through filters of three personas. So it was it was odd. I always had to ask. I remember always having, having to ask Roger, now, where are we in the story? And the psychology was very um, hard to uh, find the logic to it. When you come to a, a new film role, I know you said that a lot of it is on the page. With Eric Masters, you did a lot of research. Um, how do you typically look at a character and say, this is who I'm going to be? You know, I, uh, it really depends what kind of movie it is and uh, uh, depends on how you function in the movie. You know, sometimes, sometimes you have to really inhabit it deeply. Other times, you know, you, it's very clear that you have a function in the story and that's your main objective to make sure that you function well uh, in the overall scheme of things. But when you want to inhabit a character, which is, of course, my favorite thing to do, because it's when you have the most, um, you know, a more complex role and usually more screen time and or, or you're at the center of a project. Basically, it comes through doing what they do, learning something that opens you up to a different way of thinking that helps your imagination to think, well, I could be this person. But to do that, to be that person, you have to sort of earn the authority to pretend. And the way you earn the authority to pretend is you've got to learn something or you have to do something. You have to make an effort to transform yourself. And of course, everybody encourages that. It's a perfect situation for you to be transformed because that's the point uh, a little bit to take a walk in someone else's shoes. So it's really nice when you have a concrete thing to exercise that's maybe far from you, or, or I guess it could be close to you, but it, that, an action or an occupation or, or a job that really roots you to a different way of thinking than you're thinking, because that opens you up to being another person, feeling and uh, addressing uh, new feelings, address, addressing new thoughts, kind of abandoning your idea of who you are, not serving that anymore, and imagining that you could be someone else, which is, you know, the fundamental impulse behind pretending. You just look for these situations that trigger that thing that allow you to say, oh, I could be this person. I, you know, you leave, you leave yourself behind and you say, yeah, in different circumstances, in these circumstances, I could be this person. And then you lean into it. And uh, stuff happens and uh, you start reacting not as yourself, but in the circumstances of that person. I have to admit the first, well, I can't say a few times, many times when I would see you in your early roles, when I, w- when I was growing up and seeing you in things like Platoon or Last Temptation of Christ, Triumph of the Spirit, mm-hmm. these movies, you, you just seem so super serious. And then I saw you in Wild at Heart and I realized that you can play comedy like nobody's business. <laughs> Thank you. You seem to be having so much fun as Bobby Peru. That was a great role. That was a great role, and uh, David uh, Lynch certainly is a playful guy. So, uh, 
yeah, that was a that was a lot of fun. There is a uh, a GIF out there, and I've been trying to figure out what it's from. It's a view in the back of a car, and I think there's a, a an African American gentleman driving the car. Yeah, what uh, is that? That's a short film. Uh, Jameson put some money together, and it was guided by Kevin Spacey, and uh, uh, I think it was called Green Street, if I'm correct. And, and they had a, a competition for young filmmakers, and they had thousands of applications. And basically, they selected three filmmakers to make three short films. And what they did after this long process of choosing the winners of this competition, who would submit, you know, short films, scripts, ideas, these kinds of things, they would give the, these young filmmakers a budget, a crew, a professional crew, and give them like a week to shoot a, I can't remember, like a 15-minute film. And they would also give them one actor that would be in all three films. Kevin did it one year. I can't remember who else did it, but I did it one year. I was the actor that would work with these young filmmakers over a period of three weeks to make three short films. And the year I did it, there was a Russian filmmaker, a South African filmmaker, and uh, an American, uh, Chinese-American uh, filmmaker. We made these three films, and they were all uh, a lot of fun to do, and they're, they're quite good, I think. Uh, and that one is from the film called The Smile Man, uh, directed by uh, directed and written by this Russian guy. I forget his name. It's, I'm sorry to say. It, it's a little while ago. But you can find them online. One was called Smile Man. One a really beautiful one called uh, Love's Routine, which I think is really beautiful, real short film. The other one, I forget what the name of that one was, but they can be found probably on YouTube under Jameson short film or Smile Man or something like that. Or, or if you Google my name or something, maybe you can find them. I use that GIF more than I probably should, just because that is my feeling so often during this pandemic time of that trying to keep a smile on your face. <laughs> This is a somewhat silly question, but not really. Did you enjoy a sense of schadenfreude being able to narrate that documentary about Heaven's Gate? Uh, well, you know, listen, um, I've got lots of feelings about Heaven's Gate. I, I, I famously was fired from it, but I also enjoyed some of the time I was there. I saw some very beautiful things. I had a good time when I was there for the most part. And I saw some not so nice things. So I don't gloat over the fact that Heaven's Gate uh, took down a studio and um, put auto cinema back a little bit in the commercial world. So I don't really gloat. But yeah, that was interesting because the, the, what happened in Heaven's Gate, there's, there are lots of stories and there are lots of points of, view, of views. So that documentary was interesting because it, it addressed some of those stories. You know, if if I had never worked again and, and I got fired from that movie for a silly reason, um, you know, I, I was laughing during the lightning, a lighting setup, and I think uh, Michael Cimino was just so stressed he blew up, and I was kind of a lamb for slaughter. I, I saw it as that in a funny way. I didn't take it personally. Of course, it was humiliating, but with time, that 
that went away, to tell you the truth. And also, I was intending to only be there for two weeks, and I ended up being there for three months. And in a funny way, I was uh, holding up my theater company back at home. So uh, in a funny way, uh, I was also happy to go home. I know the French Dispatch has been delayed because of COVID. I'm curious, can you work on anything else, or are you currently working on anything? Yeah, I've actually, I've, I've done, I, I did a little part in Paul Schrader's movie, The Card Counter, which started before COVID got shut down and then has been completed since. I did a part in uh, Robert Eggers' new movie, which is still shooting, called The Northman, which shot in Belfast. And now I'm shooting with uh, Guillermo del Toro on uh, Nightmare Island in Toronto. I can't wait to see that one. Yeah, it should be good. Uh, both films started shooting before COVID, got shut down. Uh, no, that's not true. Uh, Northman was prepped before COVID, and then it, it shot started shooting in August, and it's still shooting now. And uh, Nightmare Alley is, uh, was half shot during COVID, before COVID, and then shut down, and now we're back uh, finishing well, thank you so much, sir. Uh, stay safe and good luck with everything. All right. Thank you. Ciao, ciao. We are back, and we were talking about To Live and Die in L.A., and I know, Jed, you did a ton of research. You watched a lot of movies, read a lot of stuff just to uh, prepare yourself. I did check out Boiling Point yesterday, a.k.a. Money Men, I think, is the book that it was based on, also a Petovich book. Yeah, what would you think of that? I enjoyed it. I thought I had seen it before, but then I realized about maybe 20 minutes into it that I had seen Deep Cover. And for whatever reason, the cover image or whatever it was, I mean, I'm not the kind of person that's going to mix up Lawrence Fishburne and Wesley Snipes because they are very, very different actors. I enjoyed it. I thought it was great. I wish, though, after reading about how the movie was made, I wish that James B. Harris had gotten his original cut because it sounds like, based upon Snipes' popularity, that they cut down some of the things that Hopper was doing and Hopper's given a great performance in that. Yeah. I really like that movie. And um, I think it felt more like the novel uh, money men than to live and die in LA felt like the novel in that to live and die in LA is very much an action movie. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of just propulsive energy to it. Whereas uh, Boiling Point, even though it's got Wesley Snipes with a gun pointed at the the front on the cover, you know, it, it, that's not really representative of the vibe of the, the film. They're both follow kind of equally follow the the cop and the uh, you know the the criminal that they're after, and and, and it's about these characters kind of circling each other in the same cesspool L.A. setting. So I, I like that. Uh, I like that a bit. Quite a bit. I thought Boiling Point was terrible. Really? Yeah, I absolutely. Which is which is weird because I was reading up about the making of it. I mean, so James B. Harris. I mean, this guy had some serious chops. The Bedford Incident, one of one of the least, one of the you know most unsung, I think, crime films of the eighties. Fast Walking. 
He also directed uh, one of my favourite films of the 80s uh, and I think I, I still maintain the best, most accurate depiction of James Elroy put on the screen, Cop, in 1988. And he had he was producer on a heap of major films, The Killing, Lolita, Paths of Glory, not major film but a great film, Telethon. I thought Boiling Point was just, oh, I thought it was so limp and boring and it just didn't have any of the narrative drive of of to live and die in LA and um, I, I couldn't stand to hopper with that terrible haircut and that weird thing with the ballroom dancing. I mean, it's a, it's a pity because it's actually got a cast of amazing I mean, the big, you know, the, the, the character actors, Seymour Castle, Jonathan Banks, Valerie Perrine, Tobin Bell. There's, it's got a great cast, but I just don't think it held together as well at all. I disagree. I think it's fantastic. But I do think there's, uh, I do think that it was probably muddled, maybe muddled in the cut, you know, the, the editing that happened after uh, being made the same year that uh, Wesley Snipes' star really uh, ascended. Both the actual existing cut of the film now and the marketing of it, uh, I can understand why it was not, didn't fly as high as some of his other stuff, but I, I just think it's a, it's a, a lot of, a lot of fun. And it is that a lot of it is that supporting cast is so stellar. You know, they only have maybe one scene, Jonathan Banks, or like you said, Tobin Bell, I think Tobin Bell is amazing. And his one scene in there and it's a throwaway scene uh, as far as, you know, it's kind of standard, standard cop talk that you could hear anywhere else, but he brings a lot, a lot to it. Vigo Mortensen is wonderful in it there's and and i do think harris does a lot with it that's not in the novel the parallels that he draws between the the characters uh the men and their relationships um with women and the way they the characters drift in and out you know wesley snipes and, and dennis hopper actually share screen time before the characters have met and have any idea who the others are they they kind of drift in and out of each other's day-to-day lives oblivious that uh oh this is the guy who's after me oh this is the guy i'm after uh kind of stuff and i and that's that's all harris um that that wasn't in in the uh the novel but yeah i i liked both the novel and and the film quite a bit in a sense i suppose my head was really into live and die in la when i watched boiling point so I suppose I can admit that it was an um, it's unfair to sort of compare the two. I thought I thought it was un- unfair to compare the two. Um, certainly, boiling point is no to live and die in LA. It had none of the. It's a it's a much more laconic sort of as you say, Jed, lots more laconic, character driven sort of film. Um, so I found it didn't really match up. But film that a film that I rewatched that I did think has nothing at all to do with to live and die in LA, except that it, I think it was released in the same year, which. I thought was a better comparator was, uh, can we talk a little bit about Year of the Dragon? Which I think is, uh, again, is one of those films I was talking before about, you know, you can think about those films where in the 80s in particular, cops just basically completely go AWOL and break out of all their structures and end up essentially being no better or in some respects worse than the criminals that they're chasing. And there's a whole... Whole heap. I mean, cruising is one. I think ten to midnight in nineteen eighty three is another. Uh, I was thinking about we've, we've just mentioned Cop with James Woods in nineteen eighty eight, and of course the immortal, wonderful Black Rain in nineteen eighty nine. 
which I thought, yeah, which I think is such a, such a great film. But I think you know, Year of the Dragon, which I think was that eighty five Year of the Dragon. It was eighty five, so it was the same year as To Live and Die. It's almost like a New York To Live and Die in LA. It's you know, Mickey Rourke as Stanley Wright, this misanthropic, tough. I mean, he has he, he's he's racist in a way that uh, Chance is an ex Vietnam vet fighting organised crime in New York's Chinatown. But I mean, again. He completely goes off the reservation in that respect and just goes and ends up, you know, waging his own sort of one-man war against the Chinese triads. That's the one I sort of – I, I saw a lot of parallels between that and To Live and Die. It's been a few years since I've seen Year of the Dragon, but I, I do like it. I know people uh, have got a lot of lot of issues with it uh, politically, um, and I won't uh, tell them to get over that. Uh, but, but I'm not uh, – I, I think probably because of the, the time of life that I saw it, uh, you know, it didn't really register with me. And that's, um, but that's a, probably a, a, a really good parallel. I'd like to, I'd like to watch it again. I, I, I am a fan of the movie. I'm not backpedaling for a moment on, on some of its right wing politics. I mean, I've, I felt, I know a lot of people lord the deer hunter, but I thought the deer hunter had a terrible take on the Vietnam war myself, but I mean, that's a reflection of the time. I mean, Asia and and this is something in your notes for a year of the, for the year of living. For, sorry, for to live and die in LA, Mike. Asian characters and settings were not treated well in nineteen eighties. You know, post Vietnam American cinema. I mean, they actually they were they actually were completely absent in eighties Australian cinema. So at least I suppose you could say you were one step ahead of us. But you know, I mean, if you want to. If you want an example of how what a, a rough go Asian American talented Asian American actors had in America in the eighties, you only have to look at John Lone, who plays the main gangster in Year of the Dragon, Joe, Joe, Joey Tai. How how absolutely knocked down amazing he was in Bernardo Bertolucci's nineteen eighty film The Last Emperor, and he's great in Year of the Dragon. He, he's, the, he's he's terrific in Year of the Dragon. Uh, but never really went on to do very much at all. I think he did some TV after that and had a few small, few small film roles. But, but I suppose getting back to To Live and Die, it really reflects what's going on in America in the eighties, and, and it's a real, real deregulated crime film. You know, as I say, I mean Stanley White, he basically fights, you know, the triads in New York the same way that he fought the Viet Cong in Vietnam, and he sees no difference between them and Camino who directed the film, doesn't make any bones about that. I don't think I've ever seen Year of the Dragon. I think I've just have seen Black Rain many times and have thought that it was Year of the Dragon. As I'm looking at this cast, I'm just like, where's Andrew Garcia? Because Mickey yeah, Rourke no. and Michael Douglas look exactly the same. I can't tell them apart. But Mickey Rourke's got that weird color to his hair in in that one. That uh, Isn't it almost like white? It's almost like J. Jonah Jameson. Yeah, I, I need to see Year of the Dragon again. I do, I do like, uh, I do like that movie. I've only seen it uh, two or three times, probably. It's been years. I like that the guy's name is Stanley White. That he's uh, the last white man in New York fighting against all the Asian people. That's great. Well, that, and that's essentially what the film is about. That's the, that that that's essentially what the film is about. This 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 embittered Vietnam veterans one one man war against the fact that you know Amer- that New York and America is changing. Not that there's any modern parallels to that. You know, this podcast was good until it got political. The one thing I wanted to point out real quick was that I think the Jonathan Banks character in 
boiling point is the same character that enjoys uh, Cameroon art, that that is Max Waxman. Yeah, he's only credited as Max in the movie, at least on IMDb, but I was watching it with the captions on because that's what I like to do, and several times they referred to him as Waxman. Okay. Well, that's the guy who was in Breaking Bad, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Well, I hadn't, I hadn't made that connection at all. Two different actors playing him in the two different movies, but it was interesting that it was the same character. Because when Petovich decided to become a writer, I think after he retired from the Secret Service, he wrote a lot and in a very quick amount of time. If you look at the copyrights on his book, it's like 83, 83, 83, 84, 85, 88, 89, 91. And it's like, holy shit, dude. <laughs> Slow down a little bit. I read Money Men and I read To Live and Die in L.A. I know he's got a book called To Die in uh, Venice or something like that. To Die in Beverly Hills. To Die in Beverly Hills, yeah. And I have no idea if that has any connection to To Live and Die in L.A. Just going to go through, you know, Die in Seattle. Ah, which Wherever he decides to take a vacation. But the uh, the the boiling point, uh, you know, the the first the book, uh, Money Men, that was the first book in a in a series. The car character became uh, a series character, whereas yeah, nobody from To Live and Die in L.A. Uh, went on to other stories, as far as I know. Unless you're talking the Waxman character being the same. Did either of you get a chance to see the Sentinel, which was also based on a Petovich book? Yeah, you need to get you need to get something else to do, Jed. I mean, the amount of research <laughs> for this was absolutely insane. I saw you kept posting about it, and I thought, God, this guy's gonna. Gosh. He's showing me up on my own show. It's like I don't have another one to do next week, Mike. There is that. Yeah, the Sentinel is uh, very much on the presidential protection side. You know, it doesn't have anything to do with counterfeiting, uh, like uh, Boiling Point and. Um, and uh, to live and die in L.A. did. Who is who is Michael Douglas sleeping with in it? The president's wife. He had yeah. an affair with the president's wife, uh, which is why he's compromised. And it, so it, I was going to say the the through line is treating cops as very morally and ethically fallible characters. I appreciate that. The movie itself. It's not very good. It feels like watching TV. And the director, Clark Johnson, he's done some really stellar work in television. He did both the pilot and final episodes of both The Shield and The Wire, which were, you know, pretty fantastic. You know, he's a, done great work in television, but the movie really, it just kind of feels like TV and not, not very inspired. Petovic is the is the real deal with this. I mean, he obviously had uh, a pretty full on law enforcement career. While I wouldn't, by any stretch of the imagination, say that he's you know he's channeling Chance or any of his other characters, he's he's um got opinions. You know, this is from the this is from the um the, the interview he did with uh, Strobe, uh that I referred to earlier. When you're dealing with the real underworld, and I'm not talking about people that commit misdemeanors. I'm talking about the real underworld of people who commit felonies for a living and never hold employment of any kind their entire life. You're dealing with sociopaths. You're dealing with people who really do nothing but harm other people every day of the week in one way or another. After, after a while, if you're successful in law enforcement, you lose your sensitivity for these people. I couldn't care less, and I still couldn't care less. If they took... 
lifetime career criminals and put them in jail forever or gang members that are out shooting people and killing innocent people. I mean, I could pull the switch on all of them and go and eat a sandwich afterwards. Hardcore. He does go, I mean, in, in the only caveat to that, I suppose, taking that out of context, he does go on, there's a lot in the interview, which is available on, on Wallace Strobe's website, which talks about just, just how serious the criminals he's been dealing with, you know, but yeah. yeah I've, I've been after Wallace for, for years. If you're listening to this, Strobe, please put out a, a, a nonfiction collection. Uh, his interviews and his, his pieces about uh, his journalistic uh, crime pieces, I, I really enjoy those. So his fiction's great, but I, I would really like to see a nonfiction book from, from a, a collection. Well, I'm glad Strobe got to talk to Petovich because I I wrote to him a few times and both times he was just like, nope, don't want to talk. All right, cool. Did he say why? No, it was very, I do not want to talk. I'm like, okay. Is it because you're too political, Mike? Probably. I've had people with other opinions on this show. I just uh, interviewed a libertarian author recently. Libertarians are Republicans that smoke pot, right? Well, tell me when you get James Woods on. I want to be on that episode. Right? Yeah. Likewise, likewise. I have reached out, but I've never gotten a response on that one. Okay. Yes, it's interesting. It's interesting to think what he thinks back on his films. I mean, he talks about some of them. Never talks about Salvador. Interestingly, yeah, I was going to bring that one up. That's a important one. I would like to ask you a question about Masters. You know, you talked about the scene where he he says, "Is this my package?" Then the parting line, he gives to chance you know chance is walking out he calls him jessup of course he says he says jessup you know and he turns around and he says like your work and then chance leaves and it's it's almost like he's saying like i understand you're a cop you know you're playing you know he, he's 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 communicating something about seeing through him to his real motivations or something like that. And it's not clear whether it's a question like, do you like your work? Or it's a statement like, like your work. That's the key to uh, happiness or something like that. I don't, I'm not sure what to make of that. I think he asks it as a question. That's how I got it. But what does he mean if he's asking it as a question? Right. That's a good question, because I'm not sure what he's trying to get at. And I even looked in the script, and I was like, was there another line in there? Did I miss something? And nope, he just says, like your work, question mark, cut right to the next scene. Yeah, what is that all about? Isn't there an inference, though? It's a pretty strong inference in the film that Masters has this kind of fatalistic, almost a desire to sort of get, get caught or punished or something. He likes taking chances. <laughs> that whole setup that Chance and Vukovic do is so obvious. I right. Think. And there's even a sense, there's even a, I think in that scene you're talking about where Chance says, you know, these, which they're, some, they're from some part of America where you should have a suntan. From Palm Springs, that's right, where you should have a suntan and you guys don't have suntan. So what's the sort of story? So he's kind of almost, he almost kind of knows it and he's sort of like going along with it because he's almost got this sort of, fatalistic look i'll just i'll just make sure that bianca's set up with the woman she's got a thing for and then then i'm right to check out at that point he probably has already talked to grimes who probably already sold out vukovic and chance to him because like i said grimes seems to be playing both ends against the middle this whole thing where grimes is like 
yeah, I'll help you out for $50,000 when he knows that that's the exact amount that they stole from. And I kept laughing whenever Ruthie called him the Chinaman. Chinaman is not the preferred nomenclature. We can, over, we can, we can overanalyze this. I mean, I think it's also there are aspects of the film we've just talked about how good it is. And, and this, this contributes to it, but it's pretty scrappy and all over the place. Oh, yeah. I won't disagree with that. I wouldn't be surprised if it's just bits that freaking just didn't sort of manage to put together properly or just we just whizzed through it. As you say, he shot the thing quite quickly. It was done on a low budget. It's not like a Swiss watch. It is not, and I appreciate that about it. I also yeah, think likewise. it was these these questions that we have about it, and you know, even if if our first viewings we were confused and could say, I was confused about that, I think as a first watch what you come away from with this movie is just an adrenaline high. You're like, holy cow, that was so pleasing on a visual standpoint from a pacing standpoint. Like that thing hums. I think because we're analyzing it, we're taking such a close look at it. Both layers are are revealed that, that we can appreciate, but also there are some, uh, there are some things that we could probably say, oh, that was, probably a mistake or they didn't really do that all the way you know get 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 everything out of that that they should have but as a first time viewing as a as a you know you're going to the theater to see this in 1985 what a great first impression it, it probably made and i've only ever seen it on a small screen so to actually see it on a big screen for the first time would have been extraordinary yeah to see the green and the red of lighting and some of those sets portray, you know, some of those shots portrayed on the big screen. God, it would have been, would have been stupendous. Like you say, it would have just been a, a sensory experience that just washes over you. Absolutely. The only other thing I wanted to say is I found it really amusing that uh, the John Turturro's scene in on the prison yard, he asked the guy, um, what's the movie showing tonight? And he's like galactic warriors or something like that. <laughs> and they both start complaining. They're like, man, I, I hate that space shit. It's all, this, and it just seems like uh, that's Friedkin's idea of hell is there's only one movie playing and it's star Wars, you know, it's so I thought that was, that was a nice, really subtle nod. <laughs> Star Wars did kind of knock Sorcerer off of the radar, <laughs> so I'm sure he's still pissed about it. It's a detail I had never caught until just today watching it again. I was like, oh, that's funny. I did reach out to Friedkin, and I never heard back. I'm not sure how he's doing health-wise or anything these days. I think he's doing okay, because I think there was just another interview with him. And, you know, he told me, hey, Mark, if you ever want to talk again, just, you know, let me know. <laughs> So my close personal friend, Billy Friedkin, um, yeah, unavailable. He did tweet a couple of years ago that there's a, a box set of this over from, I think it's called Carlotta Films in France, which is just this, it's like a three disc set. And I'm not sure, you know, if it's all in English or what's going on. I, I didn't pick it up. I picked up both the Shout Factory and the Arrow version of this, but I did not pick up the Carlotta Films box. And it's got a thick book with it, the three discs. So I'd be very curious what all is in that. But, I mean, that's a proper treatment for this movie. Absolutely. I can't believe that uh, the book was as hard to track down 
as it is. So it's available on Kindle very cheaply. Yeah, well, that that's how I ended up reading yeah. it. Um, but I thought surely for you know a bestseller with a well-regarded film based on it that certainly it'd be available somehow uh, now. But uh, yeah, I couldn't even find it in like used stores for you know less than a really exorbitant amount. So yeah, I, I got the Kindle version and read that. But I did all right with that one as well. And yeah, a lot of uh, Petovich's books seem to be available on Kindle, which is good for him. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. We've got to skip the cartoons. This is Albania below us. It is right there that one of the most dastardly men of modern times is holed up. Where? We don't know. No doubt you've been reading about all the important world figures who in the last few weeks have mysteriously disappeared. The enemy has grabbed Georgie Jessel, Dorothy Lamour, the one and only Colonel Sanders, and if you bozos want to believe it, Johnny Weishmuller. We got to get somebody into Albania, and we got to bust them all loose. Form a pop musical group and get invited to Albania. A pop group playing Albania? My dear adult, it can't fail. National boundaries cannot separate teeny freaks. All lucky stiffs are about to get the greatest honor any American can receive. To volunteer to be a spy. Well, what's the verdict? I've never seen anything so ridiculous, unbelievable, freaked out, cuckoo. You're sensational. You I'm not too thrilled about. That's right. We'll be back next week with the first of a series of grab bag episodes for December. We are talking about the Finks, P-H-Y-N-X. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Andrew and Jedediah. So, Jed, what is the latest with you, sir? Check me out on um, the uh, couple weeks ago episode of Ride the Pink Horse on the Projection Booth. Uh, that's, that's about what I've been doing. And, Andrew, what's the latest with you? Just working for the man. Oh, I managed to get a contract to get my PhD eventually published as an obscenely expensive academic textbook. So that'll be that'll be one of the things I'm focusing on next year. I love expensive books about cheap books. Yeah, I know. Look, if you think the world of 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 crime writing and crime, publishing crime fiction is weird, welcome to academic publishing. It is just another. Another universe of, of of publishing weirdness that I've been trying to educate myself about. You talked last time about doing a uh, a book about sci-fi paperbacks. How is that coming? Dangerous Visions and New Worlds, Radical Science Fiction 1950 to 1985 is with the publisher. And I saw on their website, this is PM Press, uh, there's, it's got its own page on PM Press, and I think PM Press are now touting that it will be out in July next year, which is around about the time that they originally told us it would be coming out. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.